This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Golden Man by Philip K. Dick. It's read for us by Mike Vendetti. It runs one hour, 15 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Golden Man by Philip K. Dick. I'm Mike Vendetti. The powers of Earth had finally exterminated the last of the horrible tribes of mutant freaks spawned by atomic war. Menace to Homo sapiens supremacy was about ended, but not quite. For out of the countryside came a great golden, godlike youth whose extraordinary mutant powers combining the world's oldest and newest methods of survival, promised a new and superior type of mankind. The Golden Man by Philip K. Dick Is it always hot like this? The salesman demanded. He addressed everybody at the lunch counter and in the shabby booth against the wall. Middle-aged fat man, with a good-natured smile, rumpled gray suit, sweat-stained white shirt, a drooping bow tie, and a Panama hat. Only in the summer... The waitress answered. None of the others stirred. The teenage boy and girl in one of the booths, eyes fixed intently on each other. Two workmen, sleeves rolled up, arms dark and hairy, eating bean soup and rolls. A lean, weathered farmer. An elderly businessman in a blue serge suit, vest and pocket watch. A dark, rat-faced cab driver, drinking coffee. A tired woman who had come in to get off her feet and put down her bundles. The salesman got out a package of cigarettes. He glanced curiously around the dingy café, lit up, leaned his arms on the counter, and said to the man next to him, "'What's the name of this town?' The man grunted. "'Walnut Creek.' The salesman sipped his coke for a while, his cigarette held loosely between his plump white fingers. Presently he reached in his coat and brought out a leather wallet. For a long time he leafed thoughtfully through cards and papers, bits of notes, ticket stubs, endless odds and ends, soiled fragments, and finally a photograph. He grinned at the photograph and began to chuckle, a low, moist rasp. Look at this, he said to the man beside him. The man went on reading his newspaper. Hey, look at this. The salesman nudged him with his elbow and pushed the photograph at him. How's that strike you? Annoyed, the man glanced briefly at the photograph. It showed a nude woman from the waist up, perhaps thirty-five years old, face turned away, body white and flabby, with eight breasts. Ever seen anything like that? The salesman chuckled, his little red eyes dancing. His face broke into lewd smiles, and again he nudged the man. I've seen that before. Disgusted, the man returned, reading his newspaper. The salesman noticed the lean old farmer was looking at the picture. He passed it genially over to him. How's that strike you, Pop? Pretty good stuff, eh? Farmer examined the picture solemnly, turned it over, studied the creased back, took a second look at the front, then tossed it to the salesman. Slid from the counter, turned over a couple of times, and fell to the floor face up. The salesman picked it up and brushed it off, carefully, almost tenderly. He restored it to his wallet. The waitress's eyes flickered as she caught a glimpse of it. Damn nice, the salesman observed with a wink. Wouldn't you say so? The waitress shrugged indifferently. I don't know. I saw a lot of them around Denver. Whole colony. That's where this was taken. Denver DCA camp. 
Any still alive? the farmer asked. Salesman laughed harshly. You kidding? He made a short, sharp swipe with his hand. Not anymore. They were all listening, even the high school kids in the booth that stopped holding hands and were sitting up straight, eyes wide with fascination. Saw a funny kind down near San Diego, the farmer said. Last year sometime. Had wings like a bat. Skin, not feathers. Skin and bone wings. The red-eyed taxi driver chimed in. Must nothing. There was a two-headed one in Detroit. I saw it on exhibit. Was it alive? The waitress asked. No, they'd already used it. In sociology, the high school boy spoke up, we saw tapes of a whole lot of them. The wing kind from down south. The big-headed one they found in Germany, an awful-looking one with sort of cones like an insect and... Worst of all, the elderly businessman stated, are those English ones that hid out in the coal mines, the ones they didn't find until last year. He shook his head. Forty years down there in the mines, breeding and developing. Almost a hundred of them. Survivors from a group that went underground during the war. They just found a new kind in Sweden, the waitress said. I was reading about it. Controls mines at a distance, they said. Only a couple of them. The DCA got there plenty fast. That's a variation of the New Zealand type, one of the workmen said. Reads minds. Reading and controlling are two different things, the businessman said. When I hear something like that, I'm plenty glad there's the DCA. There was a type they found right after the war, Farmer said. Siberia had the ability to control objects. Psychokinetic ability. Soviet DCA got it right away. Nobody remembers that anymore. I remember that, the businessman said. I was just a kid then. I remember because that was the first div I ever heard of. My father called me into the living room and told me and my brothers and sisters. We were still rebuilding the house. That was in the days when the DCA inspected everyone and stamped their arms. He held up his thin, gnarled wrist. I was stamped there sixty years ago. Now they just have the birth inspection, the waitress said. She shivered. There was one in San Francisco this month. First in over a year. They thought it was over around here. It's been dwindling, taxi driver said. Frisco wasn't too bad hit. Not like some. Not like Detroit. They still get ten or fifteen a year in Detroit, the high school boy said. All around there. Lots of pools still left. People go into them, in spite of the robot signs. How was this one? Salesman asked. The one they found in San Francisco. The waitress gestured. Common type. The kind with no toes. Bent over. Big eyes. The nocturnal type, the salesman said. Mother had hit it. They say it was three years old. She got the doctor to forge the DCH it. Old friend of the family. The salesman had finished his coke. He sat playing idly with his cigarette, listening to the hum of talk he had set into motion. The high school boy was leaning excitedly toward the girl across from him, impressing her with his fund of knowledge. The lean farmer and the businessman were huddled together, remembering the old days, the last years of the war, before the first ten-year reconstruction plan. The taxi driver and the two workmen were swapping yarns about their own experiences. Salesman caught the waitress's attention. I guess, he said thoughtfully. 
That one in Frisco caused quite a stir, something like that happening so close. Yeah, the waitress murmured. This side of the bay wasn't really hit, the salesman continued. You never get any of them over here. No, the waitress moves abruptly. None in this area, ever. She scooped up dirty dishes from the counter and headed toward the back. Never? the salesman asked, surprised. You've never had any deeves on this side of the bay? No, none. She disappeared into the back where the fry cook stood by his burners, white apron and tattooed wrists. Her voice was a little too loud, a little too harsh and strained. Made the farmer pause suddenly and glance up. Silence dropped like a curtain. All sound cut off instantly. They were all gazing down at their food, suddenly tense and ominous. None around here, the taxi driver said loudly and clearly to no one in particular. None ever. Sure, the salesman agreed genially. I was only... Make sure you get that straight, one of the workmen said. The salesman blinked. Sure, buddy, sure. He fumbled nervously in his pocket. A quarter and a dime jingled to the floor, and he hurriedly scooped them up. No offense. For a moment there was silence. Then the high school boy spoke up, aware for the first time that nobody was saying anything. I heard something, he began eagerly, voice full of importance. Somebody said they saw something up by the Johnson farm that looked like it was one of those. Shut up, the businessman said without turning his head. Scarlet-faced, the boy sagged in his seat. His voice wavered and broke off. He peered hastily down at his hands and swallowed unhappily. Salesman paid the waitress for his coke. That's the quickest road to Frisco, he began, but the waitress had already turned her back. The people at the counter were immersed in their food. None of them looked up. They ate in frozen silence, hostile, unfriendly faces intent on their food. The salesman picked up his bulging briefcase, pushed open the screen door and stepped out into the blazing sunlight. He moved toward his battered 1978 Buick, parked a few meters up. A blue-shirted traffic cop was standing in the shade of an awning, talking languidly to a young woman in a yellow silk dress that clung moistly to her slim body. The salesman paused a moment before he got into his car. He waved his hand and hailed the policeman. Say, you know this town pretty good? Policeman eyed the salesman, rumpled gray suit, bow tie, his sweat-stained shirt, the out-of-state license. What do you want? I'm looking for the Johnson farm, the salesman said. Here to see him about some litigation. He moved toward the policeman, a small white card between his fingers. I'm his attorney from the New York Guild. Can you tell me how to get there? I haven't been through here in a couple of years. Nat Johnson gazed up at the noonday sun and saw that it was good. He sat sprawled out on the bottom step of the porch, a pipe between his yellow teeth, a lithe, wiry man in red checkered shirt and canvas jeans, powerful hands, iron-gray hair that was still thick despite sixty-five years of active life. He was watching the children play. Jean rushed, laughing in front of him, bosom heaving under her sweatshirt, black hair streaming behind her. She was sixteen, bright-eyed, legs strong and straight, slim, young body bent slightly forward with the weight of the two horseshoes. After her scampered Dave, fourteen, white teeth and black hair, a handsome boy, a son to be proud of. Dave caught up with his sister, passed her, and reached the far pig. 
He stood waiting, legs apart, hands on his hips, his two horseshoes gripped easily. Gasping, Jean hurried toward him. "'Go ahead,' Dave shouted. "'You shoot first. I'm waiting for you.' "'So you can knock them away?' "'So I can knock them closer.' Jean tossed down one horseshoe and gripped the other with both hands, eyes on the distant pig. Her lithe body bent, one leg slid back, her spine arched. She took careful aim, closed one eye, and then expertly tossed the shoe. With a clang, the shoe struck the distant pig, circled briefly around it, then bounced off again and rolled to one side. A cloud of dust rolled up. Not bad, Nat Johnson admitted from his step. Too hard, though. Take it easy. His chest swelled with pride as the girl's glistening, healthy body took aim and threw again. Two powerful, handsome children, almost ripe on the verge of adulthood, playing together in the hot sun. And there was Chris. Chris stood by the porch, arms folded. He wasn't playing. He was watching. He had stood there since Dave and Jean had begun playing, the same half-intent, half-remote expression on his finely cut face as if he were seeing past them, beyond the two of them, beyond the field, the barn, the creek bed, the rows of cedars. "'Come on, Chris,' Jean called, as she and Dave moved across the field to collect their horseshoes. "'Don't you want to play?' No, Chris didn't want to play. He never played. He was off in a world of his own, a world into which none of them could come. He never joined in anything, games or chores or family activities. He was by himself always, Remote, detached, aloof, Seeing past everyone and everything, that is, until all at once something clicked, and he momentarily relapsed, re-entered their world briefly. Nat Johnson reached out and knocked his pipe against the step. He refilled it from his leather tobacco pouch, his eyes on his eldest son. Chris was now moving into life, heading out onto the field. He walked slowly, arms folded calmly as if he had had, for the moment, descended from his own world into theirs. Jean didn't see him. She had turned her back and was getting ready to pitch. Hey, Dave said, startled. Here's Chris. Chris reached his sister, stopped and held out his hand, a great dignified figure, calm and impassive. Uncertainly, Jean gave him one of the horseshoes. You want this? You want to play? Chris said nothing. He bent slightly, a supple arc of his incredibly graceful body, then moved his arm in a blur of speed. The shoe's sails struck the far peg and dizzily spun around it. Ringer. The corner of Dave's mouth turned down. What a lousy darn thing. Chris, Jean reproved, you don't play fair. No, Chris didn't play fair. He had watched half an hour, then came out and thrown once. One perfect toss, one dead ringer. He never makes a mistake, Dave complained. Chris stood, face blank, a golden statue in the midday sun. Golden hair, skin, a light down of gold fuzz on his bare arms and legs. Abruptly he stiffened. Nat sat up, startled. What is it? he barked. Chris turned in a quick circle, magnificent body alert. Chris, Jean demanded, what? Chris shot forward like a released energy beam. He bounded across the field, over the fence, into the barn, and out the other side. 
His flying figure seemed to skim over the dry grass as he descended into the barren creek bed between the cedars. Momentary flash of gold. He was gone. Vanished. There was no sound, no motion. He had utterly melted into the scenery. What was it this time? Jean asked wearily. She came over to her father and threw herself down in the shade. Sweat glowed on her smooth neck and upper lip. Her sweatshirt was streaked and damp. What did he see? Did he see something? Dave started, coming up. Nat grunted. Maybe there's no telling. I guess I'd better tell Mom not to set a place for him, Jean said. He probably won't be back. Anger and futility descended over Nat Johnson. No, he wouldn't be back. Not for dinner and probably not the next day. Or the one after that. He'd be gone. God only knew how long. Or where. Or why. Off by himself. Alone someplace. If I thought there was any use, Nat began. I'd send you two after him, but there's no... He broke off. A car was coming up the dirt road toward the farmhouse. A dusty, battered old Buick. Behind the wheel sat a plump, red-faced man in a gray suit who waved cheerfully at them as the car sputtered to a stop and the motor died into silence. Afternoon, the man nodded as he climbed out of the car. He tipped his hat pleasantly. He was middle-aged, genial-looking, perspiring freely as he crossed the dry ground toward the porch. Maybe you folks can help me. What do you want? Nat Johnson demanded hoarsely. He was frightened. He watched the creek bed out of the corner of his eye, praying silently. God, if only he stayed away. Jean was breathing quickly, sharp little gasps. She was terrified. Dave's face was expressionless, but all the color had drained from it. Who are you? Nat demanded. Name's Baines, George Baines. The man held out his hand, but Johnson ignored it. Maybe you've heard of me. I own the Pacific, a development corporation. We built all those little bomb-proof houses just outside of town. Those little round ones you see as you come up the main highway from Lafayette. What do you want? Johnson held his hand steady with an effort. He'd never heard of the man, although he'd noticed the housing tract. It couldn't be missed. A great ant heap of ugly pillboxes straddling the highway. Baines looked like the kind of man who'd owned them. But what did he want here? I bought some land up this way, Baines was explaining. He rattled a sheaf of crisp papers. This is the deed, but I'll be damned if I can find it. He grinned good-naturedly. I know it's around this way, someplace, this side of the state road. According to the clerk at the county recorder's office, a mile or so this side of that hill over there. But I'm no damn good at reading maps. It isn't around here, Dave broke in. There's only farms around here. Nothing's for sale. This is a farm, son, Bain said genially. I bought it for myself and my missus, so we could settle down. He wrinkled his pug nose. Don't get the wrong idea. I'm not putting up any tracks around here. This is strictly for myself. An old farmhouse, twenty acres, a pump, and a few oak trees. Let me see the deed. Johnson grabbed the sheaf of papers, and while Baines blinked in astonishment, he leaped rapidly through them. His face hardened, and he handed them back. What are you up to? This deed is for a parcel fifty miles from here. Fifty miles? Baines was dumbfounded. No kidding. But the clerk told me. Johnson was on his feet. He towered over the fat man. 
He was in top-notch physical shape, and he was plenty damn suspicious. Clerk, hell, you get back into your car and you drive out of here. I don't know what you're after or what you're here for, but I want you off my land. In Johnson's massive fist, something sparkled, a metal tube that gleamed ominously in the midday sunlight. Bain saw it and gulped. No offense, mister. He backed nervously away. You folks sure aren't touchy. Take it easy, will you? Johnson said nothing. He gripped the lash tube tighter and waited for the fat man to leave. But Baines lingered. Look, buddy, I've been driving around this furnace five hours, looking for my damn place. Any objection to my using your facilities? Johnson eyed him with suspicion. Gradually, the suspicion turned to disgust. He shrugged. Dave, show him where the bathroom is. Thanks, Baines grinned thankfully, and if it wouldn't be too much trouble, maybe a glass of water, I'd be glad to pay you for it, chuckled knowingly. Never let the city people get away with anything, eh? Christ! Johnson turned away in revulsion as the fat man lumbered after his son into the house. Dad, Jean whispered. Soon as Baines was inside, she hurried up onto the porch, eyes wide with fear. Dad, do you think he... Johnson put his arm around her. Just hold on tight. He'll be gone soon. Girl's dark eyes flashed with mute terror. Every time the man from the water company or the tax collector, some tramp, children, anybody come around, I get a terrible stab of pain here. She clutched at her heart, hand against her breasts. It's been that way thirteen years. How much longer can we keep it going? How long? The man, named Baines, emerged gratefully from the bathroom. Dave Johnson stood silently by the door, body rigid, youthful face stony. Thanks, son, Baines sighed. Now, where can I get a glass of cold water? He smacked his thick lips in anticipation. After you've been driving around the sticks looking for a dump some red-hot real estate agent stuck you with? Dave headed into the kitchen. Mom, this man wants a drink of water. Dad said he could have it. David turned his back. Baines got a brief glimpse of the mother, gray-haired, small, moving toward the sink with a glass, face withered and drawn without expression. Then Baines hurried from the room down the hall. He passed through a bedroom, pulled a door open, found himself facing a closet. He turned and raced back through the living room into a dining room, then another bedroom. In a brief instant, he had gone through the whole house. He peered out a window, the backyard, remains of a rusting truck, entrance of an underground bomb shelter, tin cans, chickens scratching around, a dog asleep under a shed, a couple of old auto tires. He found a door leading out. Soundlessly, he tore the door open and stepped outside. No one was in sight. It was a barn, a leaning ancient wood structure, cedar trees beyond a creek of some kind, what had once been an outhouse. Baines moved cautiously around the side of the house. He had perhaps thirty seconds. He had left the door of the bathroom closed. The boy would think he had gone back in there. Baines looked into the house through a window, a large closet filled with old clothing, boxes, and bundles of magazines. He turned and started back. He reached the corner of the house and started round it. Nat Johnson's gaunt shape loomed up and blocked his way. 
All right, Baines, you ask for it. A pink flash blossomed. It shut out the sunlight in a single blinding burst. Baines leaped back and clawed at his coat pocket. The edge of the flash caught him, and he half fell, stunned by the force. His suit shield sucked in the energy and discharged it, but the power rattled his teeth, and for a moment he jerked like a puppet on a string. Darkness ebbed around him. He could feel the mesh of the shield glow white as it absorbed the energy and fought to control it. His own tube came out, and Johnson had no shield. You're under arrest, Baines muttered grimly. Put down your tube and your hands up, and call your family. He made a motion with the tube. Come on, Johnson, make it snappy. The lash tube wavered and then slipped from Johnson's fingers. You're still alive. Dawning horror crept across his face. Then you must be... Dave and Jean appeared. Dad! Come over here, Baines ordered. Where's your mother? Dave jerked his head numbly. Inside. Get her and bring her here. You're DCA, Nat Johnson whispered. Baines didn't answer. He was doing something with his neck, pulling at the flabby flesh. The wiring of a contact mic glittered as he slipped it from a fold between two chins and into his pocket. From the dirt road came the sound of motors, sleek purrs that rapidly grew louder. Two teardrops of black metal came gliding up and parked beside the house. Men swarmed out in the dark gray-green of the government civil police. In the sky, swarms of black dots were descending, clouds of ugly flies that darkened the sun as they spilled out men and equipment. The men drifted slowly down. He's not here, Bane said as the first man reached him. He got away. Inform wisdom back at the lab. We've got this section blocked off. Baines turned to Nat Johnson, who stood in days silent, uncomprehending, his son and daughter beside him. How did he know we were coming? Baines demanded. I don't know, Johnson muttered. He just knew. A telepath? I don't know. Baines shrugged. We'll know soon. A clamp is out all around here. He can't get past, no matter what the hell he can do. Unless he can dematerialize himself. What will you do with him when you, if you catch him? Jean asked huskily. Study him? And then kill him? That depends on the lab evaluation. If you could give me more to work on, I could predict better. We can't tell you anything. We don't know anything more. The girl's voice rose with desperation. You don't talk. Baines jumped. What? He doesn't talk. He never talked to us, ever. How old is he? Eighteen. No communication. Baines was sweating. In eighteen years, there hasn't been any semantic bridge between you? Does he have any contacts, signs, codes? He ignores us, eats here, stays with us, sometimes he plays when we play, or sits with us. He's gone days on end. We've never been able to find out what he's doing or where. He sleeps in the barn by himself. Is he really gold-colored? Yes. Skin as well as hair. Skin, eyes, hair, nails, everything. And he's large, well-formed. It was a moment before the girl answered. A strange emotion stirred her drawn features. A momentary glow. He's incredibly beautiful. A god. A god come down to earth. Her lips twisted. You won't find him. He can do things. 
things you have no comprehension of, powers so far beyond your limited... You don't think we'll get him, Baines frowned. More teams are landing all the time. You've never seen an agency clamp in operation. We've had sixty years to work out all the bugs. If he gets away, it'll be the first time. Baines broke off abruptly. Three men were quickly approaching the porch. Two green-clad civil police and a third man between them. A man who moved silently, lithely. A faintly luminous shape that towered above them. Chris! Jean screamed. We got him, one of the police said. Baines fingered his lash tube uneasily. Where? How? He gave himself up, the policeman answered, voice full of awe. He came to us voluntarily. Look at him. He's like a metal statue, some sort of god. The golden figure halted for a moment beside Jean. Then it turned slowly, calmly to face Baines. Chris! Jean shrieked. Why did you come back? The same thought was eating at Baines, too. He shoved it aside for the time being. Is the jet out front? He demanded quickly. Ready to go, one of the CP answered. Fine. Baines strode past them down the steps and onto the dirt field. Let's go. I want him taken directly to the lab. For a moment he studied the massive figure who stood calmly between the two civil policemen. Beside him, they seemed to have shrunk, become ungainly and repellent, like dwarves. What had Jean said? A god come to earth. Baines broke angrily away. Come on, he muttered brusquely. This one may be tough. We've never run up against one like it before. We don't know what the hell it can do. The chamber was empty except for the seated figure. Four bare walls, floor and ceiling. A steady glare of white light relentlessly etched every corner of the chamber. Near the top of the far wall ran a narrow slot, the view windows through which the interior of the chamber was scanned. The seated figure was quiet. He hadn't moved since the chamber locks had slid into place, since the heavy bolts had fallen from outside and the rows of bright-faced technicians had taken their places at the view windows. He gazed down at the floor, bent forward, hands clasped together, face calm, almost expressionless. In four hours, he hadn't moved a muscle. Well, Bain said, what have you learned? Wisdom grunted sourly. Not much. If we don't have him doped out in 48 hours, we'll go ahead with the youth. We can't take any chances. You're thinking about the Tunis type, Bain said. He was, too. They had found ten of them, living in the ruins of the abandoned North African town. Their survival method was simple. They killed and absorbed other life forms, then imitated them and took their places. Chameleons, they were called. It had cost sixty lives before the last one was destroyed. Sixty top-level experts, highly trained DCA men. Any clues? Baines asked. He's different as hell. This is going to be tough. Wisdom thumbed a pile of tape spools. This is the complete report, all the material we got from Johnson and his family. We pumped them with the psych wash, then let them go home. Eighteen years, and no semantic bridge. Yet he looks fully developed. Mature at thirteen, a shorter, faster life cycle than ours. But why the main? 
all the gold fuzz like a Roman monument that's been gilded. Has the report come in from the analysis room? You had a wave shot taken, of course. His brain pattern has been fully scanned, but it takes time for them to plot it out. We're all running around like lunatics while he just sits there. Wisdom poked his stubby finger at the window. We caught him easily enough. He can't have much, can he? But I'd like to know what it is before we youth him. Maybe we should keep him alive until we know. Youth in forty-eight hours, Wisdom repeated stubbornly. Whether we know or not, I don't like him. He gives me the creeps. Wisdom stood chewing nervously on his cigar. A red-haired, beefy-faced man, thick and heavy-set with a barrel chest and cold, shrewd eyes deep-set in his hard face. Ed Wisdom was director of DCA's North American branch. But right now he was worried. His tiny eyes darted back and forth, alarm flickers of gray in his brutal, massive face. You think, Bane said shortly, that is it? I always think so, Wisdom snapped. I have to think so. I mean... I know what you mean, Wisdom paced back and forth among the study tables, technicians at their benches, equipment and humming computers, buzzing tape slots, and research hookups. This thing lived eighteen years with his family, and they don't understand it. They don't know what it has. They know what it does, but not how. What does it do? It knows things. What kind of things? Wisdom grabbed his lash tube from his belt and tossed it on a table. Here. What? Here, Wisdom signaled, and a view window was slid back an inch. Shoot him. Baines blinked. You said forty-eight hours. With a curse, Wisdom snatched up the tube, aimed it through the window directly at the seated figure's back, and squeezed the trigger. Blinding flash of pink. A cloud of energy blossomed in the center of the chamber sparkled, then died to the dark ash. Good God, Baines gasped. You... He broke off. The figure was no longer sitting. As Winston fired, it had moved in a blur of speed away from the blast to the corner of the chamber. Now it was slowly coming back, face blank, still absorbed in thought. Fifth time, Winston said as he put the tube away. Last time, Jameson and I fired together. Missed. He knew exactly when the bolts would hit and where. Baines and Wisdom looked at each other. Both of them were thinking the same thing. But even reading minds wouldn't tell him where they were going to hit. Baines said, When, maybe, but not where. Could you have called your own shots? Not mine, Wisdom answered flatly. I fired fast, damn near at random. He frowned. Random. We'll have to make a test of this. He waved a group of technicians over. Get a construction team up here, on a double. He grabbed paper and pen and began sketching. While the construction was going on, Baines met his fiancée in the lobby outside the lab, the great central lounge of the DCA building. How's it coming? she asked. Anita Ferris was tall and blonde, blue eyes and a mature, carefully cultivated figure an attractive, competent-looking woman in her late twenties. She wore a metal foil dress and cape with a red and black stripe on the sleeve, the emblem of the A-Class. Anita was director of the Semantics Agency, a top-level government coordinator. Anything of interest this time? Plenty. 
Baines guided her from the lobby into the dim recess of the bar. Music played softly in the background, a shifting variety of patterns formed mathematically. Dim shapes moved expertly through the gloom from table to table. Silent, efficient robot waiters. As Anita sipped her Tom Collins, Baines outlined what they'd found. What are the chances? Anita asked slowly. He's built up some kind of deflection cone. There was one kind that warped their environment by direct mental effort. No tools. Direct mind to matter. Psychokinetics. Baines drummed restlessly on a tabletop. I doubt it. The thing has ability to predict, not to control. He can't stop the beams, but he can sure as hell get out of the way. Does he jump between the molecules? Baines wasn't amused. This is serious. We've handled these things sixty years, longer than you and I have been around, added together. Eighty-seven types of deviants have shown up. Real mutants that could reproduce themselves, not mere freaks. This is the eighty-eighth. We've been able to handle each of them in turn. But this? Why are you so worried about this one? First, it's eighteen years old. That in itself is incredible. His family managed to hide it that long. Those women around Denver were older than that. Those ones with... They were in a government camp. Somebody high up was toying with the idea of allowing them to breed. Some sort of industrial use. We withheld youth for years. But Chris Johnson stayed alive. Outside our control. Those things at Denver were under constant scrutiny. Maybe he's harmless. You always assume a deev is a menace. He might be beneficial. Somebody thought those women might work in. Maybe this thing has something that would advance the race. Which race? Not the human race. It's the old, the operation was a success, but the patient died routine. If we introduce a mutant to keep us going, it'll be mutants, not us, who'll inherit the earth. It'll be mutants surviving for their own sake. Don't think for a moment we can put padlocks on them and expect them to serve us. If they're really superior to Homo sapiens, they'll win out in even competition. To survive, we've got to cold-deck them right from the start. In other words, we'll know Homo superior when he comes by definition. He'll be the one we won't be able to youth. That's about it, Barnes answered. Assuming there is a Homo superior... Maybe they're just homo-peculiar, homo with an improved line. The Neanderthal probably thought the Cro-Magnon man had merely an improved line, a little more advanced ability to conjure up symbols and shape flint. From your description, this thing is more radical than a mere improvement. This thing, Bane said slowly, has an ability to predict. So far it's been able to stay alive. It's been able to cope with situations better than you or I could. How long do you think we'd stay alive in that chamber, with energy beams blazing down at us? It's the sense it's got, the ultimate survival ability, if it can always be accurate. A wall speaker sounded. Baines, you want it in the lab. Get the hell out of the bar and up ramp. Baines pushed back his chair and got to his feet. Come along. You may be interested in seeing what wisdom has got dreamed up. A tight group of top-level DCA officials stood around in a circle, 
middle-aged, gray-haired, listening to a skinny youth in a white shirt and rolled-up sleeves, explaining an elaborate cube of metal and plastic that filled the center of the view platform. From it jutted an ugly array of tube snouts, gleaming muzzles that disappeared into an intricate maze of wiring. This, the youth was saying briskly, is the first real test. It fires at random, as nearly random as we can make it, at least. Weighted balls are thrown up in an airstream, then drop free to fall back and cut relays. They can fall in almost any pattern. The thing fires according to their pattern. Each drop produces a new configuration of timing and position. Ten tubes in all. Each will be in constant motion. And nobody knows how they'll fire, Anita asked. Nobody. Wisdom rubbed his thick hands together. Mind reading won't help him. Not with this thing. Anita moved over to the view windows. As the cube was rolled into place, she gasped. Is that him? What's wrong? Baines asked. Anita's cheeks were flushed. Why, I expected a... a... thing. My God, he's beautiful. Like a golden statue. Like a deity. Baines laughed. He's eighteen years old, Anita. Too young for you. The woman was still peering through the view window. Look at him. Eighteen. I don't believe it. Chris Johnson sat in the corner of the chamber on the floor, a posture of contemplation. Head bowed, arms folded, legs tucked under him. In the stark glare of the overhead lights, his powerful body glowed and rippled. A shimmering figure of downy gold. Pretty, isn't he? Wisdom muttered. All right, start it going. You're going to kill him? Anita demanded. We're going to try. But he's... She broke off uncertainly. He's not a monster. He's not like those others, those hideous things with two heads or those insects or those awful things from Tunis. What is he then? Baines asked. I don't know. But you can't just kill him. It's terrible. The cube clicked into life. The muzzles jerked, silently altered position. Three retracted, disappeared into the body of the cube. Others came out, quickly. Efficiently, they moved into position, and abruptly, without warning, opened fire. A staggering burst of energy fanned out, a complex pattern that altered each moment, different angles, different velocities, a bewildering blur that cracked from the windows down into the chamber. The golden figure moved. He dodged back and forth, expertly avoiding the bursts of energy that seared around him on all sides. Rolling clouds of ash obscured him. He was lost in a mist of crackling fire and ash. Stop it! Anita shouted. For God's sake, you'll destroy him! The chamber was an inferno of energy. The figure had completely disappeared. Wisdom waited a moment, then nodded to the technicians operating a cube. They touched guide buttons, and the muzzles slowed and died. Some sank back into the cube. All became silent. The works of the cube ceased humming. Chris Johnson was still alive. He emerged from the settling clouds of ash, blackened and singed, but unhurt. He had avoided each beam. He had weaved between them and among them as they came, a dancer leaping over glittering sword points of pink fire. He had survived. No, Wisdom murmured, shaken and grim. Not a telepath. 
Those were at random. No prearranged pattern. The three of them looked at each other, dazed and frightened. Anita was trembling. Her face was pale and her blue eyes were wide. What then? she whispered. What is it? What does he have? He's a good guesser, Wisdom suggested. He's not guessing, Baines answered. Don't kid yourself. That's the whole point. No, he's not guessing, Wisdom nodded slowly. He knew. He predicted each strike. I wonder... Can he... Can he make a mistake? We caught him, Baines pointed out. He said he came back voluntarily. There was a strange look on Wisdom's face. Did he come back after the clamp was up? Baines jumped. Yes, after. He couldn't have got through the clamp, so he came back, Wisdom grinned wirely. The clamp must actually have been perfect. It was supposed to be. If there had been a single hole, Baines murmured, he would have known it, gone through. Wisdom ordered a group of armed guards over. Get him out of there, to the youth stage. Anita shrieked. Wisdom, you can't! He's too far ahead of us. We can't compete with him. Wisdom's eyes were bleak. We can only guess what's going to happen. He knows. For him, it's a sure thing. I don't think it'll help him at youth, though. The whole stage is flooded simultaneously. Instantaneous gas released throughout. He signaled impatiently to the guards. Get going. Take him down right away. Don't waste any time. Can we... Barnes murmured thoughtfully. The guards took up positions by one of the chamber locks. Cautiously, the tower control slid the lock back. The first two guards stepped cautiously in lash tubes ready. Chris stood in the center of the chamber, his back to them as they crept toward him. For a moment he was silent, utterly unmoving. The guards fanned out as more of them entered the chamber. Then Anita screamed, wisdom cursed. The golden figure spun and leaped forward in a flashing blur of speed, past the triple line of guards, through the lock, and into the corridor. Get him! Bane shouted. Guards milled everywhere. Flashes of energy lit up the corridor as the figure raced among them, up the ramp. No use, Wisdom said calmly. We can't hit him. He touched a button, then another. But maybe this will help. What? Baines began. But the leaping figure shot abruptly at him, straight at him, and he dropped to one side. The figure flashed past. It ran effortlessly, face without expression, dodging and jumping as the energy beam seared around it. For an instant, the golden face loomed up before Baines. It passed and disappeared down a side corridor. Guards rushed after it, kneeling and firing, shouting orders excitedly. In the bowels of the building, heavy guns were rumbling up. Locks slid into place as escape corridors were systematically sealed off. Good God, Baines gasped as he got to his feet. Can't he do anything but run? I gave orders, Wisdom said, to have the building isolated. There's no way out. Nobody comes and nobody goes. He's loose here in the building, but he won't get out. If there's one exit overlooked, he'll know it, Anita pointed out shakily. We won't overlook any exit. We got him once. We'll get him again. A messenger robot had come in. Now it presented its message respectfully to Wisdom. From analysis, sir, Wisdom tore the tape open. 
Now we'll know how it thinks. His hands were shaking. Maybe we can figure out its blind spot. It may be able to outthink us. But that doesn't mean it's invulnerable. It only predicts the future. It can't change it. If there's only death ahead, its ability won't... Wisdom's voice faded into silence. After a moment, he passed the tape to Baines. I'll be down in the bar, Wisdom said, getting a good stiff drink. His face had turned lit gray. All I can say is, I hope to hell this isn't the race to come. What's the analysis? Anita demanded impatiently, peering over Baines's shoulder. How does it think? It doesn't, Baines said, as he handed the tape back to his boss. It doesn't think at all, virtually no frontal lobe. It's not a human being. It doesn't use symbols. It's nothing but an animal. An animal, Wisdom said, with a single, highly developed faculty. Not a superior man. Not a man at all. Up and down the corridors of the DCA building, guards and equipment clanged. Loads of civil police were pouring into the building and taking up position beside the guards. One by one, the corridors and rooms were being inspected and sealed off. Sooner or later, the golden figure of Chris Johnson would be located and cornered. We were always afraid a mutant with superior intellectual powers would come along, Bain said reflectively. A deeb who would not be to us what we are to the great apes. Something with a bulging cranium, telepathic ability, a perfect semantic system, ultimate powers of symbolization and calculation, a development along our own path, a better human being. He acts by reflex, Anita said wonderingly. She had the analysis and was sitting at one of the desks, studying it intently. Reflex, like a lion, a golden lion. She pushed the tape aside, a strange expression on her face. The lion god. Beast, Wisdom corrected tartly. Blonde beast, you mean. He runs fast, Bane said, and that's all, no tools. He doesn't build anything or utilize anything outside himself. He just stands and waits for the right opportunity, and then he runs like hell. This is worse than anything we've anticipated, Wisdom said. His beefy face was lead gray. He sagged like an old man, his blunt hands trembling and uncertain. Be replaced by an animal, something that runs and hides, something without a language, he spat savagely. That's why they weren't able to communicate with it. We wondered what kind of semantic system it had. It hasn't got any. No more ability to talk and think than a dog. That means intelligence has failed, Baines went on huskily. We're the last of our line, like the dinosaur. We've carried intelligence as far as it'll go. Too far, maybe. We've already got to the point where we know so much, think so much, we can't act. Men of thought, Anita said, not men of action. It's begun to have a paralyzing effect, but this thing, this thing's faculty works better than ours ever did. We can't recall past experiences, keep them in mind, learn from them. At best, we can make shrewd guesses about the future, from our memory of what's happened in the past. But we can't be certain. We have to speak of probabilities, grays, not blacks and whites. 
We're only guessing. Chris Johnson isn't guessing, Anita added. He can look ahead, see what's coming. He can pre-think. Let's call it that. He can see into the future. Probably he doesn't perceive it as the future. No, Anita said thoughtfully. It would seem like the present. He has a broader present. But his present lies ahead, not back. Our present is related to the past. Only the past is certain to us. To him, the future is certain. And he probably doesn't remember the past any more than any animal remembers what's happened. As he develops, Bain said, as his race evolves, it'll probably expand its ability to pre-think instead of ten minutes, thirty minutes, then an hour, a day, a year. Eventually they'll be able to keep ahead a whole lifetime. Each one of them will live in a solid, unchanging world. There'll be no variables, no uncertainty, no motion. They won't have anything to fear. Their world will be perfectly static, a solid block of matter. And when death comes, Anita said, they'll accept it. There won't be any struggle. To them, it'll already have happened. Already have happened, Baines repeated. To Chris, our shots had already been fired. He laughed harshly. Superior survival doesn't mean superior man. If there were another worldwide flood, only fish would survive. If there were another ice age, maybe nothing but polar bears would be left. When we opened the lock, he had already seen the men, seen exactly where they were standing and what they'd do. A neat faculty, but not a development of mind, a pure physical sense. But if every exit is covered, wisdom repeated, he'll see... He can't get out. He gave himself up before. He'll give himself up again. Shook his head. An animal without language, without tools. With his new sense, Bain said, he doesn't need anything else. He examined his watch. It's after two. Is the building completely sealed off? You can't leave, Wisdom stated. You'll have to stay here all night or until we catch the bastard. I met her, Baines indicated Anita. She's supposed to be back at Semantics by seven in the morning. Wisdom shrugged. I have no control over her. If she wants, she can check out. I'll stay, Anita decided. I want to be here when he... when he's destroyed. I'll sleep here, she hesitated. Wisdom, isn't there some other way... If he's just an animal, couldn't we? A zoo? Wisdom's voice rose in a frenzy of hysteria. Keep it pinned up in the zoo? Christ, no, he's got to be killed. For a long time, the great gleaming shape crouched in the darkness. He was in a storeroom, boxes and cartons stretched out on all sides, heaped up in orderly rows, all neatly counted and marked. Silent and deserted. But in a few moments, people burst in and searched the room. He could see this. He saw them in all parts of the room, clear and distinct, men with lash tubes, grim-faced, stalking with murder in their eyes. The sight was one of many, one of a multitude of clearly etched scenes lying tangent to his own, and to each was attached a further multitude of interlocking scenes that finally grew hazier and dwindled away. A progressive vagueness 
each syndrome less distinct. But the immediate one, the scene that lay closest to him, was clearly visible. He could easily make out the sight of the armed men. Therefore it was necessary to be out of the room before they appeared. The golden figure got calmly to its feet and moved to the door. The corridor was empty. He could see himself already outside in the vacant, drumming hall of metal and recessed lights. He pushed the door boldly open and stepped out. A lift blinked across the hall. He walked to the lift and entered it. In five minutes a group of guards would come running along and leap into the lift. By that time he would have left it and sent it back down. Now he pressed a button and rose to the next floor. He stepped out into a deserted passage. No one was in sight. It didn't surprise him. He couldn't be surprised. The element didn't exist for him. The positions of things, the space relationships of all matter in the immediate future were as certain for him as his own body. The only thing that was unknown was that which had already passed out of being. In a vague dim fashion, he had occasionally wondered where things went after he had passed them. He came to a small supply closet. It had just been searched. It would be half an hour before anyone opened it again. He had that long. He could see that far ahead. And then, and then he would be able to see another area, a region further beyond. He was always moving, advancing into new regions he had never seen before. A constantly unfolding panorama of sights and scenes, frozen landscapes spread out ahead. All objects were fixed, pieces on a vast chessboard, through which he moved, arms folded, face calm. A detached observer who saw objects that lay ahead of him as clearly as those underfoot. Right now, as he crouched in the small supply closet, he saw an unusually varied multitude of scenes for the next half hour. Much lay ahead. The half hour was divided into an incredibly complex pattern of separate configurations. He had reached a critical region. He was about to move through worlds of intricate complexity. He concentrated on a scene ten minutes away. It showed like a three-dimensional still. A heavy gun at the end of the corridor trained all the way to the far end. Men moved cautiously from door to door, checking each room again as they had done repeatedly. At the end of the half hour, they had reached the supply closet. A scene showed them looking inside. By that time, he was gone, of course. He wasn't in that scene. He had passed on to another. The next scene showed an exit. Guards stood in a solid line. No way out. He was in that scene, off to one side, in a niche just inside the door. The street outside was visible, stars, lights, outlines of passing cars and people. In the next tableau, he had gone back, away from the exit. There was no way out. In another tableau, he saw himself at other exits, a legion of golden figures duplicated again and again as he explored regions ahead, one after another, but each exit was covered. In one dim scene, he saw himself lying charred and dead. He had tried to run through the line, up the exit. But that scene was vague, one wavering indistinct, still out of many. The inflexible path along which he moved would not deviate in that direction. It would not turn him that way. The golden figure in that scene, the miniature doll in that room, was only distinctly related to him. It was himself, but a faraway self, a self he would never meet. 
he forgot it and went on to examine the other tableau. The myriad of tableaus that surrounded him were an elaborate maze, a web which he now considered bit by bit. He was looking down into a doll's house of infinite rooms, rooms without number, each with its furniture, its dolls, all rigid and unmoving. The same dolls and furniture were repeated in many. He himself appeared often, the two men on the platform, the woman. Again and again, the same combinations turned up. The play was redone frequently. The same actors and props moved around in all possible ways. Before it was time to leave the supply closet, Chris Johnson had examined each of the rooms tangent to the one he now occupied. He had consulted each, considered its contents thoroughly. He pushed the door open and stepped calmly out into the hall. He knew exactly where he was going and what he had to do. Crouched in the stuffy closet, he had quietly and expertly examined each miniature of himself, observed which clearly etched configuration lay along its inflexible path. The one room of the dollhouse, the one set out of legions toward which he was moving. Anita slipped out of her metal foil dress, hung it over a hanger, then unfastened her shoes and kicked them under the bed. She was just starting to unclip her bra when the door opened. She gasped. Soundlessly, calmly, the great golden shape closed the door and bolted it after him. Anita snatched up her lash tube from the dressing table. Her hand shook. Her whole body was trembling. What do you want? she demanded. Her fingers tightened convulsively around the tube. I'll kill you. The figure regarded her silently, arms folded. It was the first time she had seen Chris Johnson closely, the great dignified face, handsome and impassive. Broad shoulders, the golden mane of hair, golden skin, pelt of radiant fuzz. Why? she demanded breathlessly, her heart pounding wildly. What do you want? She could kill him easily, but the lash tube wavered. Chris Johnson stood without fear. He wasn't at all afraid. Why not? Didn't he understand what it was? What the small metal tube could do to him? Of of course, she said suddenly in a choked whisper. You can see ahead. You know I'm not going to kill you, or you wouldn't have come here. She was flushed, terrified, and embarrassed. He knew exactly what she was going to do. He could see it as easily as she saw the walls of the room, the wall bed with its covers folded neatly back, her clothes hanging in the closet, her purse and small things on the dressing table. All right. Anita backed away, then abruptly put the tube down on the dressing table. I'll kill you. Why should I? She fumbled in her purse and got out her cigarettes. Shakily, she lit up her pulse racing. She was scared and strangely fascinated. Do you expect to stay here? It wouldn't do any good. They've come through the dorm twice already. They'll be back. Could he understand her? She saw nothing on his face, only blank dignity. God, he was huge. It wasn't possible he was only eighteen, a boy, a child. He looked more like some great golden god come down to earth. She shook the thought off savagely. He wasn't a god. He was a beast, a blonde beast, come to take the place of man, to drive man from the earth. Anita snatched up the lash tube. Get out of here. You're an animal. A big, stupid animal. You can't even understand what I'm saying. You don't even have a language. You're not human. 
Chris Johnson remained silent, as if he were waiting. Waiting for what? He showed no sign of fear or impatience, even though the corridor outside rang with the sound of men searching, metal against metal, guns and energy tubes being dragged around, shouts and dim rumbles as section after section of the building was searched, sealed off. They'll get you, Anita said. You'll be trapped here. They'll be searching this wing any moment. She savagely stugged out her cigarette. For God's sake, what do you expect me to do? Chris moved toward her. Anita shrank back. His powerful hands caught hold of her, and she gasped in sudden terror. For a moment, she struggled blindly, desperately. Let go! She broke away and leaped back from him. His face was expressionless. Calmly, he came toward her, an impassive god advancing to take her. Get away! She groped for the lash tube, trying to get it up. But the tube slipped from her fingers and rolled onto the floor. Chris bent down and picked it up. He held it out to her, in the open palm of his hand. Good God! Anita whispered shakily. She accepted the tube, gripped it hesitantly, then put it down again on the dressing table. In the half-light of the room, the great golden figure seemed to glow and shimmer, outlined against the darkness. A god? No, not a god. An animal. A great golden beast without a soul. She was confused. Which was he? Or was he both? She shook her head, bewildered. It was late, almost four. She was exhausted and confused. Chris took her into his arms gently, kindly. He lifted her face and kissed her. His powerful hands held her tight. She couldn't breathe. Darkness mixed with the shimmering golden haze swept around her. Around and around it spiraled carrying her senses away. She sank down into it gratefully. The darkness covered her and dissolved her in a swelling torrent of sheer force that mounted in intensity each moment until the roar of it beat against her and at last blotted out everything. Anita blinked. She sat up and automatically pushed her hair into place. Chris was standing before the closet. He was reaching up, getting something down. He turned toward her and tossed something on the bed, her heavy metal foil traveling cape. Anita gazed down at the cape without comprehension. What do you want? Chris stood by the bed waiting. She picked up the cape uncertainly. Cold creepers of fear plucked at her. You want me to get you out of here? She said softly. Pass the guards and the CP? Chris said nothing. They'll kill you instantly. She got unsteadily to her feet. You can't run past them. Good God, don't you do anything but run? There must be a better way. Maybe I can appeal to wisdom. I'm Class A, Director Class. I can go directly to the full directorate. I ought to be able to hold them off, keep them back the youth indefinitely. The odds are a billion to one against us if we try to break past. She broke off. But you don't gamble, she continued slowly. You don't go by odds. You know what's coming. You've seen the cards already. She studied his face intently. No, you can't be cold-decked. It wouldn't be possible. For a moment she stood deep in thought. Then with a quick, decisive motion, she snatched up the cloak and slipped it around her bare shoulders. She fastened the heavy belt, 
bent down and got her shoes from under the bed, snatched up her purse and hurried to the door. Come on, she said. She was breathing quickly, cheeks flushed. Let's go. Well, there's still a number of exits to choose from. My car is parked outside in the lot by the side of the building. We can get to my place in an hour. I have a winter home in Argentina. If worst comes to worst, we can fly there. It's in the back country, away from the city's jungle and swamps. Cut off from almost everything. Eagerly, she started to open the door. Chris reached out and stopped her. Gently, patiently, he moved in front of her. He waited a long time, body rigid. Then he turned the knob and stepped boldly out into the corridor. The corridor was empty. No one was in sight. Anita caught a faint glimpse, the back of a guard hurrying off. If they had come out a second earlier. Chris started down the corridor. She ran after him. He moved rapidly, effortlessly. The girl had trouble keeping up with him. He seemed to know exactly where to go. Off to the right, down a side hall, a supply passage, on to an ascent freight lift. They rose, then abruptly halted. Chris waited again. Presently, he slid the door back and moved out of the lift. Anita followed nervously. She could hear sounds, guns, and men very close. They were near an exit. A double line of guards stood directly ahead. Twenty men, a solid wall, and a massive, heavy-duty robot gun in the center. The men were alert, faces strained and tense. Watching wide-eyed, guns gripped tight. A civil police officer was in charge. We'll never get past, Anita gasped. We wouldn't get ten feet, she pulled back. They'll... Chris took her by the arm and continued calmly forward. Blind terror leaped inside her. She fought wildly to get away, but his fingers were like steel. She couldn't pry them loose. Quietly, irresistibly, the great golden creature drew her along beside him, toward the double line of guards. There he is. Guns went up. Men leaped into action. The barrel of the robot cannon swung around. Get him. Anita was paralyzed. She sagged against the powerful body beside her, tugged along helplessly by his inflexible grasp. The lines of guards came nearer, a sheer wall of guns. Anita fought to control her terror. She stumbled, half fell. Chris supported her effortlessly. She scratched, fought at him, struggled to get loose. Oh, shoot, she screamed. Guns wavered uncertainly. Who is she? The guards were moving around, trying to get a sight on Chris without including her. Who's he got there? One of them saw the stripe on her sleeve, red and black. Director class, top level. She's class A. Shocked, the guards retreated. Miss, get out of the way. Anita found her voice. Don't shoot. He's in my custody. You understand? I'm taking him out. The wall of guards moved back nervously. No one's supposed to pass. Director Wisdom gave the orders. I'm not subject to Wisdom's authority. She managed to edge her voice with a harsh crispness. Get out of the way. I'm taking him to the semantics agency. For a moment, nothing happened. There was no reaction. Then slowly, uncertainly, one guard stepped aside. Chris moved. A blur of speed away from Anita passed the confused guards through the breach in the line, out the exit, and onto the street. Bursts of energy flashed wildly after him. Shouting guards milled out. Anita was left behind, forgotten. The guards, the heavy-duty gun, were pouring out into the early morning darkness. 
Sirens wailed. Police cars roared into life. Anita stood dazed, confused, leaning against the wall, trying to get her breath. He was gone. He had left her. Good God. What had she done? She shook her head, bewildered, her face buried in her hands. She'd been hypnotized. She had lost her will, her common sense, her reason. The animal, the great golden beast, had tricked her, taken advantage of her. And now he was gone, escaped into the night. Miserable, agonized tears trickled through her clenched fingers. She rubbed at them futilely, but they kept on coming. He's gone, Bane said. We'll never get him now. He's probably a million miles from here. Anita sat huddled in the corner, her face to the wall, a little bent heap, broken and wretched. Wisdom paced back and forth. But where can he go? Where can he hide? Nobody will hide him. Everybody knows the law about Deves. He's lived out in the woods most of his life. He'll hunt. That's what he's always done. They wondered what he was up to, off by himself. He was catching game and sleeping under trees, Baines laughed harshly. And the first woman he meets will be glad to hide him, as she was. He indicated Anita with a jerk of his thumb. So all that gold, that mane, that godlike stance was for something, not just ornament. Wisdom's thick lips twisted. He doesn't have just one faculty. He has two. One is new, the newest thing in survival methods. The other is as old as life. He stopped pacing to glare at the huddled shape in the corner. Plumage, bright feathers, combs for the roosters, swans, birds, bright scales for the fish, gleaming pelts and manes for the animals. An animal isn't necessarily bestial. Lions aren't bestial, or tigers, or any of the big cats. They're anything but bestial. You'll never have to worry, Bane said. You'll get by as long as human women exist to take care of him. And since he can't see ahead into the future, he already knows he's sexually irresistible to human females. We'll get him, Wisdom muttered. I've had the government declare an emergency. Military and civil police will be looking for him. Armies of men. A whole planet of experts. The most advanced machines and equipment. We'll flush him sooner or later. By that time, it won't make any difference, Bane said. He put his hand on Anita's shoulder and patted her ironically. You'll have company, sweetheart. You won't be the only one. You're just the first of a long procession. Thanks, Anita grated. The oldest survival method and the newest combined to form one perfectly adapted animal. How the hell are we going to stop him? We can put you through a sterilization tank, but we can't pick them all up. All the women he meets along the way, and if we miss one, we're finished. We'll have to keep trying, Wisdom said. Round up as many as we can, before they can spawn. Faint hope glinted in his tired, sagging face. Maybe his characteristics are recessive. Maybe ours will cancel his out. I wouldn't lay any money on that, Bane said. I think I know already which of the two strains is going to turn up dominant. He grinned wryly. I mean, I'm making a good guess. It won't be us. This has been The Golden Man by Philip K. Dick. 
I'm Mike Vendetti. Production copyright 2015 by audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Mike. And we are talking about Philip K. Dick's uh, short novella, or no, it's a novella anyways, or novelette, something like that, from uh, 1954, I believe, and it's called The Golden Man. Um, apparently, it was submitted under the title "The God That uh, The God Who Runs," <laughs> which is not that great a title. But the Golden Man's not that great a title either. Um, and next is even worse. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the what the ideal title. The Golden Man's okay, I guess. Yeah, I like the Golden Man. Uh, uh, it's used as an anthology title Hope, as well, I guess. Like yeah, yeah, I saw oh, this. I was just gonna say I, I saw this in like a Borders or something like twenty years ago, and I I read the story in the store, and I, I loved it then. Oh, uh, you know, that's interesting because I, I I love Philip K. Dick, but I had not read this until I heard Mike's reading of it. I I read about it, so I knew what it was about, but I never actually s- sat down and read I had it. I'd seen the movie a couple of years ago, but I never actually read the story until until Mike's recording. I think Homo Aureus would be a better title for this story. <laughs> But well, you know, the reason man, why I recorded it was uh, it uh, the man in the high tower. The high castle. It, the high castle is a maybe a series on Amazon on their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their subscription mm-hmm. channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recorded this to kind of tag on to that series if. Uh, it it goes. I mean, they've done the they've done the pilot, and it's gotten pretty good reviews so far. And if it takes off, then uh, the other Phil K. Dick works will follow along because you can do a, uh, you know, like a uh, a hashtag marketing. Sure. It's uh, the Golden Man. Uh, hashtag man. man in the High Castle. There you go. Yeah. It's, I, I was kind of thinking this is like an episode or, of the Twilight Zone. Or, or any author. You, you could do a whole anthology series and have it run a couple of years just doing different dick stories. Oh, That's true. You know, what what's striking to me is watching the movie. I had completely forgotten the movie. I thought it was I, – I, I thought it had scenes in it that <laughs> were not in it. Um, <laughs> I was like, wasn't there a plane crash? I think I think that's a, another movie from around that era You're where – You're thinking of knowing. There's some – Knowing, that's it. Okay, yeah. And instead of next, they both have the sign. Yeah, knowing, which I, I thought was good. I actually kind of like the movie as well, even though it's it's really a train wreck of many bad these sort of things. It still works for me somehow. But one of the things that I I thought was really interesting about the movie adaptation is that uh, essentially the main character can't be like anything like he is in the in the story, except for his superpower. Because if he was, he would never be suitable for a Hollywood hero, right? The, the, the main character in the book has no sapience, as they call it, right? He, he can't talk, he can't communicate, he can't plan, he can't interact with any, anybody else. I think this is Philip K. Dick sort of dealing with autism again. I, I, I seriously think like maybe his son had autism. And that is like he's always tackling this oh. over and over again. Well, oh, he that's can, a good analogy. He interacted with Anita. 
uh, in yeah, he did way, at the end. Yeah, in what way did he interact? Like an animal, right? He it's yes. not like he's he's uh, charming her with the one-liners, and you know, he doesn't have to maybe. But what I I I I thought at first this wasn't that great of a story, and that was kind of why I was avoiding it. But I think it's a very uncomfortable story, is what it is. And I keep going back to that scene right at the beginning of the story in the diner. And sort of, you know, there's a lot of exposition getting us into the world going on there, you know, with all the beauty mute, mm-hmm. talk. But I actually think it's even creepier if you don't think of it, you know, just as, you know, it's a scene to get all that exposition out. Because what happens is this fake salesman shows up, accidentally starts showing people that picture <laughs> and the way Mike's got it, he's got it such an asshole sort of gross out guy, you know, hey baby, what do you think of this? <laughs> it's like, oh my god, this lady with eight boobs and he's passing it around and like I do that well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> it was it was like it shades of yeah. total recall. But it is, totally. But what's interesting is there's that that's an act. Right. He's not actually interested in this boobed lady. He's playing he's playing a role to elicit the feeling uh, to elicit the result. He's looking for Jews. Right. He's knocking on doors. Do you, any Jews live in this neighborhood? Knock, knock, knock. We've got to get them to the concentration camp. And oh, no, no Jews live around here. Right. Well, there's this one guy looks a little Jewish over by the Johnson farm. Right? That's essentially what's going on there. He's a secret police. Even when he goes up to the cop, he doesn't tell him the truth. And the cop doesn't figure him out. And yet, you know, well, apparently. he hands him a piece of paper, right, a card. And I was thinking, well, maybe that actually has the DCA thing. Everybody knows about the secret police, but nobody, you know, wants to know exactly. And it's very, it's a creepy story. You know, it's interesting how the locals protect this guy. Exactly. Because they they apparently know about him, you know, and it's like... uh, Shut up uh, about that, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, like the kid that says... uh, uh, Showing up to his friend? Yeah, you know, showing off to his girlfriend, and they shut up. That's right. And I was um, looking at the notes in one of the paperback anthologies or collections of... um, and he talks about that. This is one of the stories where he just goes on and on and on about it. Um, and he's the final line. This is from a 1978 collection. Um, he says, here I am. He's describing the golden man. Here I am also saying that mutants are dangerous to us ordinaries, a view which John W. Campbell Jr. deployed. Deplored. We were supposed to view them as our leaders, but I always felt uneasy as to how they would view us. I mean, maybe they wouldn't want to lead us. Maybe from their super evolved lofty level, they wouldn't seem worth leading. Anyhow, even if they agreed to lead us, I felt uneasy as to where we would wind up going. It might have something to do with a building marked showers. Yeah. Yeah. Which really, and that's like, holy crap, that's exactly what's going on. But what's interesting is it's both ways, right? They're afraid of the mutants, taking over uh and and we're doing to them what they think what we think they will do to us yeah you thinking them yeah that's like what we did to the neanderthals exactly and 
it's uh, this has got a lot of stuff going on in it. it it's 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 also super X-Men, you know, like if you mm-hmm. guys know the X-Men story from Marvel, they've got this uh, sort of constant uh push and pull in that narrative sort of story between the good mutants and Magneto the bad mutants. Versus, yeah. John w- versus Yeah, the John W. Campbell mutants versus the Philip K. Dick mutants, right? The ones that are going to lead us to, uh, uh, you know, by goodness, to uh, a happy future where we all live together happily. Um, and the other future where they're going to exterminate us because we are a threat and, and to they're them. They're the next epi- next thing in the human evolution. So it's right that they take center stage and the rest of us get full aside. Um, so have any of you ever read the, the uh, comic book series House of M? Uh, is that like one of those future generation books? No, it's not future generation. I've read it. Yeah, so, so for, for those who are not Tamahome, basically in House of M, uh, one of the mutants, the Scarlet Witch, manages to change reality to a world where mutants are dominant and basically Magneto and his family, which includes Scarlet Witch, basically rule humanity and regular humanity is Mm. under their heel. So it's kind of a role reversal Mm -hmm. and, Spider-Man, Spider-Man gets in, Spider-Man's pretending to be a real mutant rather than being a bitten by a radioactive spider because that's not really mutants. That's just, he's, he's trying, trying to, to pass. pass. <laughs> and there's also a very interesting themes brought up because seeing the world through basically Magneto's greatest desire. And it's, yeah, just the whole idea of Magneto wanting to make reality basically just for the mutants and not for anyone else. Yeah, it's it's very chilling, and the end of that story is heartbreaking in a way, and it's affected the uh, the Marvel universe for quite a while in comic book years. Anyway, basically, spoiler: when uh, when when it's determined that that the Scarlet Witch did this, and they get her to undo it, she goes back and reverses the other way, and nearly wipes out every mutant there is, making them all depowered, mm. which is. She can basically she, change she can, history, she right? Can, she can warp reality around herself. She's she's very scarily powerful and weird that way, which makes her very difficult as a character because re- re- rewriting reality is not is something not even Thor can do, and it's kind of hard to do tension with that. It's good for making a strange arc like this, but in a day to day comic, that's why you don't see her around much where she gets used poorly. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm certain that the Scarlet Witch in the uh, Avengers movie has no power to rewrite reality whatsoever because I can't see them. I can't see them being able to make any good story out of that. To me, I just have a lot of hand sparkles, hand sparkles. This goes back, you know, all the way to the beginnings of the superhero genre. Uh, You know, Superman is, is written by uh, uh, one guy. One of them's a Jew. The other one's uh, a goy, right? And, they create a Superman, an Ubermensch, um, who gains more and more powers until, you know, he's not just jumping over the buildings. He's, he's bulletproof and he's, he can laser, uh, you know, they just keep adding superpowers, right? Laser beams out of his eyes. Uh, what, by the time it hits that 1979 movie, he can, you know, reverse God, time. There's, there's nothing he can't, can't do as opposed to Batman, who <coughs> is just a rich guy with, you know, a gun and a cape and running around hitting people. Um, but the, the, the idea of those, you know, powerful superheroes is that they are going to save us rather than, uh, hurt us. And I, I think 
looking at this story out of the context of when Philip K. Dick wrote it and why he wrote it is interesting. But I think going to why, why he wrote it is, uh, you know, what he's citing in his, his notes about it is that, you know, there's this magazine called Astounding, which uh, later changed to Analog. And for a long time, from the 40s, uh, maybe late 30s, actually, from the 40s at least until the 60s, it was run by uh, an editor named John W. Campbell, who was absolutely obsessed with a couple of things. One is psychic powers being a science. He thought that was going to happen somehow and that it, everybody should be writing science fiction stories about it. Yeah, and whatever I, happened to that? <laughs> well, it's complete bullshit. <laughs> that's what that's what happened to it, um, and it, I think it made the magazine a lot worse than it could be. But also, um, yeah, just mutation and the evolution up this Homo superior thing that actually comes up in in uh, X Men is is coming out of that sort of. It's not he who invented it, but he's sort of an exemplar in in science fiction who's pushing it. It goes uh, back to a novel called Slan. Is that A.E. Van Vaughn? Paul? Which is about a telekinetic, I guess, uh, mutant who looks like a regular guy, but he's got, I don't know, he's got little uh, dingleberries coming out of his head or something that make him him telepathic. And they're going to take over the world and, and make us better because they're just superior to us. And apparently this is a, a very big wish fulfillment plot thread uh, because a lot of people Fans bought into slants. it. Fans are slants, that's right. So you see, we, the people who read science fiction, we're we're just genetically uh, underappreciated supermen who, if you just let us run the world, would solve all the world's problems. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the appeal to a guy who's, you know, not very well liked and yet somehow feels I'm smarter than everybody. I'm I've got the superpower or whatever. Uh, you know, so, it's interesting. I, I I had not read much science fiction until I got into doing these things. You know, that you you pretty much uh, you know look for material to do for audiobooks, mm-hmm. and I pretty much avoided it. But uh, once I started reading it, I really got to liking it. I mean, it's uh, it's got a lot of good stuff going on in it. You got a lot of stuff going on, you know, and it's, you've got a lot of uh, people who are. Pretty much looking into well, that's what it is. Looking into the future, but as you uh, read some of these things, like Philip K. Dick, you know it's uh, happening. You know, then uh, that's kind of the scary part. You know, not the real far out stuff, but uh, this is a, this you know, like with society and weird. so forth. This is a pretty weird story, and I, I, I'm shocked that they could even add a, adapt it as a movie. I mean, it just so isn't. Yeah, yeah, you know, the thinnest pieces pieces of this okay so you have someone who can basically see the future and you have a diner scene and that's about it you know one of the things that i was looking at is here's what they did they just like put a golden tint on everything like uh he's wearing a a sort of a gold colored jacket he's he's got a tan um his girlfriend you know always shining in the in the in the sunlight it's like it I thought they were actually going to title it The Golden Man just based on the fact that yeah, we'll just put a gold filter on everything. And maybe they wanted to title the next. Uh, it's not a great title, but 
yeah, so it, I, it probably had the Golden Man. But I think they liked single word titles for some reason. I don't know why Hollywood does that. Just You know, it's interesting. My uh, I've gotten two ratings on this uh, title on Audible. Mm-hmm. And uh, one is a one star, which is a, they didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. And one was a five star that I put on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you really liked it. Well, I didn't like the one star. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> you know, in order to rate it, you've got to buy it. But uh, you get. Uh, well, I, I think it's. A, I think it's 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 kind of a a story that is repulsive to everybody, right? It's got the the, the main thing that's going on is we are the monsters. And yeah. yet we don't want to be replaced, right? So, yeah, you know, and it's, you know, it's like the people will buy these audiobooks and they don't really know what it is. And they just buy it based on the title and the cover and so forth and the short blurb put in there. Mm-hmm. And then they get into it and say, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like the book. I don't like the narrator. I don't like anything <laughs> about it. I want my money back. Well, they can do that too. Can they? Yeah. If yeah. you're a- what is it, Golden Subscriber? You can get refunds? What? Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, up to a certain point, you know, that uh, after a while they yeah, they figure out and say, hey, this guy's just listening and uh, getting his money yeah, back. Yeah. So they experience. limit that. But, uh, you know, it's like every every quarter when I get my settlement, there'll always be a couple that are got the red, you know, where... Uh, Strike through. You know, well, they, they paid me and now they want their money back. But hey, I, I come out on top. Anyway. Audible is not good. <laughs> that would not be. Oh, you you lose the money yourself. By me? You lose the money yourself when they return it. Well, yeah. I mean, I I lose the percentage that I was paid. Oh, that's too bad. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's just a jump change, though. So. Well, they're the monopoly. They're the uh, ones who control the the deal. Oh, yeah, they are. You know, I, I want to mention one thing about this. It's like, you know, I grew up in the Cold War era. And uh, it's interesting, like, what's happening now as opposed to what's happening then. Because back then, mm. we had pretty much one enemy. That was the Soviets. And, uh, you know, we knew where they were. They knew where we were. We had the threat of uh, assured mass destruction between us. And now we've come into an era... We don't really know who they are. And we don't have that threat any longer that we can hold up and say, hey, we'll nuke you. Mm-hmm. You know, who are you going to nuke? Yeah, you can't really. And, and uh, you know, I mean, Philip K. Dick pretty much carries this. I mean, through all the books that I've read, it's typically something to do with, <laughs> with the Soviets or with nuclear war. And like but notice thing, he doesn't he doesn't spend a, a time, you know, hanging out with the Soviets. It's always the effect. Um, yeah, well, like, yeah, the, the Soviets have their, own, have their own uh, they have their own DCA. That's right. They, they're all part of the same scheme. That secret police is all across the world. Everybody agrees. It's it's not it's not like they're hiding the fact that these mutants are around. Everybody's educated about it in school. Right. But, you know, the, the fact that everybody they're all getting used <laughs> you yeah, well, they, yeah, they, yeah, well, they're deeves. I mean, you got the deeves out there, and they got deeves on uh, in the Soviet Union, and they're everywhere. So it's actually called the DCA, but I don't think it's ever mentioned in the story what it is. So I, I, I'm guessing it's like deviant civil authority, something yeah, like. That. I, I think it was. I think it was somewhere in there that tells what it was, but uh, 
I didn't find yeah. I couldn't spot it, but it's 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 like the fact that everybody everybody in the story knows about it. Not us, right? But everybody in the story knows it and they all go along with it. The only people who don't go along with it are the are the families that raise these kids, right? The Johnson family. By the way, the the character name is the same in the movie. Uh, Chris Johnson um, is the same as in as in the text. So it's not like it's completely you know off the rails from the the story. I mean, obviously they're not going to set it in the future. Like you know, it doesn't need to be set in the future to tell this story, right? That's sort of a very science fiction uh, magazine sort of thing to do. Just set it in the future. Um, but uh, if you want to show the, uh, the people going to showers in the future, right. Or the, uh, I I think there's a really cool thing going on in this story in that it's turning, you know, Dick was really interested in what happened in Nazi Germany. He thought that that was, you know, endlessly fascinating to read about because it was so horrible and yet it was real. And he's, you know, he's putting that into the United States, right? He's bringing that, you know, there was some atomic war, it sounds like, and that's caused all these mutations. And for years and years and years all over the world, oh, look, there's another set of mutants. And then we hear, right at the, the those opening, uh, that diner scene, we hear about all of the different variations on how they managed to survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 and sometimes the diner scene kind of shows all the... Uh, yeah, all the deeds have uh, come out. Sometimes it's a family that's you know the mom uh, got her baby uh, this even though it was you know a fake certification, or sometimes they've been hiding in caves and you know no matter what it Full is, lines, whatever you know, it just they're they're everywhere. They're everywhere. But it, but it, it seems like you know the the uh, you know in the, in the story that the, the family likes them. Yeah. Or they. He's a brother. I mean, he's he's got something wrong with him. You know, he's autistic or something. But but he's really he's got other traits that make him really really special. You know, and it's uh, like like they say. You know, he lived with them for what nineteen years. He's and he was still beautiful. protecting him. He's beautiful. He's elegant. He's graceful. Right. Every he, movement he, is pretty. Uh, James Bond gene. <laughs> is that what it was? Yes, the the ladies could not resist. The ladies can't. Yeah, well, that that's that that's actually what got it at the end, you know, is that uh, that's what's going to get them. They it's the women who can't resist. But the guys, what's interesting? Not a problem. That also goes to you know sort of maybe some guys. Uh, Paul, you and I have done a whole lot of shows yeah. on Philip K. Dick novels, and one of the things that always comes up in Philip K. Dick novels is the wives are unfaithful. Yeah, right? here we are. Uh, and the husbands are unfaithful too, but it's sort of that. So, in the sort of crappy Wikipedia uh, a summary of this story, it says that it's his fiance that he, he saves him. I was like, oh, how did he get that? I mean, the guy can't even talk. How, you know, engaged? Um, well, it's 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 actually we get that sense that she is going to you know make yeah, a baby they, with they him, right? They, they talk about sterilizing her. To make sure that yes, her. her. Are they going to sterilize everybody well, on the well, planet? That's, that's part of what they talk about in the end. They can't because uh, they're going to at the end. They're losing, right? They know this is the end. Yeah, because that guy's really quick. He's impossible. Speedy Gonzalez, you know. I mean, it just. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 it, that fact that he can never be uh, outmaneuvered. 
I think is what a, drew somebody, whoever wrote the script for that uh, movie next, to that. I think that's how that movie works is the end scene. The whole like last 40 minutes of the movie didn't happen. Right. And he just wakes up back in bed. Oh, yeah, I didn't. I made a mistake. I'll have to fix that. <laughs> just rewind. Right. This is this is a very weird sort of concept. And I think that the movie does a very good job of illustrating. I mean, it's not a great movie in the greatest grand scheme of things, but I think it does a very good job of illustrating how this sort of superpower would work. It shows him branching off and walking down and up and around and seeing all the angles where or, things or, could or go wrong. scenes over and over again, but that they didn't actually happen. They He just played it out in his mind so that it's going to fail right. and then try it again and just repeating, which kind of kind of remind me a little bit of Groundhog Day a little bit because we in Groundhog Day we see different days of him having the same variation variations of the same conversation. Sure. This, this is just much more very, similar, very yeah. compact sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah. You know what it reminded me more of is uh, computer gaming where you have a save game, you screwed up, you go back, you start that you know so you're walking over bridges that are falling or something, right? It's like okay, I got to jump, jump left, right, up, jump, down, right? And you make a mistake. Like, oh, okay, I'll do yeah, it again. It, it, left, that's left, a jump, really jump. good. That's a really that, good uh, analogy, especially because well, I guess we'll spoil the ending where we find out that the last couple days he has to rewind at the end because it's just it went all yeah, it went all just, wrong. So he's he going back to an earlier save game, all the way back, all the way back to the Cliffside <laughs> Hotel and try to try again. And what what made me think about in the in the book in the the novel or novella I guess it is is that that's so different is that it's because he can't talk um, I I try to you know we see it all from sort of everyone else's point of view there's a a couple of scenes where we sort of get a yeah, little dim hint yeah, as to what's going on in his mind but you can't really tell the story from that person's point of view but. If you think about how when you're playing a computer game, uh, you interact with the, the world of the computer game. Basically, all these people around you are sort of fodder for your cannons. And if you interact with them, it's like you've got three, you know, three word choices, you know, choose the angry answer, the normal answer, or the suck up answer, right? And that's how you interact with them. They, they're sort of non-entities to you. And... And you're going through the world destroying things. Um, th- so it'd be like telling the story of, you know, somebody playing one of these first person shooter games, you know, on campaign mode from the point of view of the, the NPCs, the non-player characters who are, you know, trying to stop this monster that can go back in time and kill us all in a different way if he makes a slight mistake and gets injured badly enough. Yeah. It's like, what the hell? This is a weird way of looking at the world. But when you start thinking about how we're all sort of trapped like that, I think this is a deeper than it just first appears as sort of a mutant story, you know? Yeah. Um, go ahead, I thought, Tom, I, mean. I thought it was pretty. I thought it was pretty uh, entertaining. I mean, you can market this as like a X Men or a superhero type story, and uh, I think people would be uh, happy with that. And I, I thought it was well done how he um, they switched to his point of view and he was imagining how 
I just like that section where, that was from his point of view when uh, he was imagining like a dollhouse and all the different uh, possibilities that he could do and all the miniature versions of himself that could be doing different things. I thought that, mm. I thought that was a nice uh, descriptive part of it. It, it. It's got some really in a, you know stuff you haven't really seen before. And because it's so early before before all the X Men and you know it's from the 1950s, it it's just he is Mister Innovative, Philip K. Dick. He's just he's trying to get inside other people's minds. I think all the time, and and then examining how that affects culture. And it it even in a story like this, which I've kind of avoided for a long time, I, I find myself thinking, you know, this is I, I I listened to it like four or five times over the week. It's it's only like an hour and a half, right, or whatever. It's it's really short, and and I watched the movie once, but I keep going back to how you know that is it is such a horrible, chilling world he's created, and yet it's pretty much like ours. Yeah. If you just tweak it slightly, yeah, that's our has world. A very okay. I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be unfair to Dick here, but it, I think it's true. It has a very 50s feel in terms terms of the culture, but that yeah, a lot of Dick's stories seem to do. And yet there are bits thrown in. I mean, we've had atomic wars. We have the DCA. They mentioned, mm-hmm. I was just looking at the text, there's apparently DCAs for every country. So, yep. so we have a DCA, and they're, oh, yeah. and they're doing the exact same thing. So this seems to be like a worldwide effort. And that, But there's things like energy shields that he throws in randomly. Like, So yeah. it, it's, it's like... Yeah, like those, everybody's carrying a laser tube or something. It makes, it makes no... Uh, you don't need that for a movie version, right? You don't need to set it in the future. So that, 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 uh, the only reason you have to have it that way is, is because there's been a nuclear war and that's caused the mutations. X-Men have done without the, uh, nuclear war to cause the mutations. Uh, I, th- I think but, the, uh, justification in the X-Men universe, if I recall correctly, is that the atomic bomb tests increase the background radiation of the Earth and that's why mutants have come out, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's comic book science. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Mike, I think you did another story that's about mutants by Philip K. Dick. That's a really creepy story as well. Sort of set, it might be set in the same universe. Uh, it's called The Crawlers. Did you do that one? Oh, yeah, I did The Crawlers. You know, and that was, that was, that was really pretty interesting. You know, that, uh, they were not, they were ugly. They were, that's right. See, the Golden Man is beautiful, right? Yeah, the Crawlers, the Crawlers were ugly. I mean, it was like, uh, there's the cover on like, that book is, uh, you know, there's a children sort of basically there, there's yeah. slugs. Yeah. There's slugs and they, you know, they, they really appear harmless other than they're just a pain, you know, and they, they wipe them out. But, uh, yeah, but you, you as I recall, they, they were, how they yeah. were generated is people have these babies that are mutants, right? And they don't yeah. want to kill them. So they take them to the edge of town to live with the other mutants. Yeah. But it, you know, it seemed it seemed to me in the end that the crawlers had their own agenda. They did, and uh, you know, it was going to uh, take over the guys because I, I remember the the cover I used for it was a uh, a farmer with a shovel and he was hitting a crawler. Yeah, hitting a crawler like you'd do a snake or yeah. you know something like that, cut its head That's off. The one where they have like poison and, things and kind of like quasi um, kind of like at the end they. They are totally they, deformed. They talk yeah. about having human children, and they think those human children are inferior. Or am I thinking of a different story? Yes. Oh. No, I think you're right. That I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it starts with a 
a really creepy guy. There's a scene where a guy's driving down a road in a truck and he runs over something. And it was a crawler. It's like, that was just a human being you ran over. And it's like, yep, another crawler. It's like, what the hell kind of world is this? This sort of, you know, thing where you can just ignore the fact that people are being murdered all the time. And it's not a big deal. Because because they're not seeing a human. Yeah, it's like they're... Exactly. It's It's othering. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you know, a a, a human woman gives birth to... uh, one of these things, you know, a deep and it, uh, it's still her baby, you know, and it's kind of like the, you have the instinct to love it and take care of it. And they do that. And, uh, the social pressure is too great to keep it in the house, but you don't no, want it's to just, kill it's your- kind of like, uh, you know, camel, once he gets his nose under the uh, tent, he's in bed with you. And that's what these things do. <laughs> There's a Harlan Ellison story. I can't remember the title, but I've tried Googling it as we're talking here that, um, the basic maybe maybe one of you can remember maybe not Mike because he reads as much science fiction. The basic plot is you have this mutant psionic who's inducted into society against fighting a force coming from the future that's attacking the world, and it turns out what that he's that those mutants are really he's really one of those mutants and he's just being used to stop the mutants from taking over in the future, and he's basically mm-hmm. being sacrificed to stop. The end of Homo sapiens and the rise of these mutants. I can't remember the name of the damn story though. That reminds me of another one. I think Mike's uh, narrated called the Skull. Yeah, I did the Skull. I, I think that's a yeah. really terrific story, a time travel story. Uh, it's not. It's. I don't think there's any mutant action going on in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the one where they, they got the, they have the skull and the skull identifies who the bad guys yeah. are. Right. And. And then he goes back in time with the skull in his hand to try and find the guy, and lo and behold, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, Pogo says, "We met the enemy, and he is us." Yes, I'm I'm thinking, you know, this theme of mutants is it seems to have completely dried up in in SF, um, but it it also with the, with the crawlers, it's like I think we talked about this, uh, we did, Paul, in. Um, one of the Philip K. Dick novels has a sort of a thalidomide mutant, right? What was that one? The uh, one set in a desert. He's going on the pilg. Oh, oh yeah, um, yeah. The the, the one with Roger Zelazny, Deus Irae. Ah, right, Deus Irae, right. So, yeah. So in that, the main character has no arms and has no legs. How is he supposed to, you know, be our hero? McMaster's. And yet he is. Tibor McMaster's. That's right. And yet he is our hero. He's our viewpoint character, at least. And his struggles, you know, are, it, it's very interesting. I, I, whenever I read Philip K. Dick, we get this huge sense of pathos, you know, feeling about how it is to live in somebody's world and, and live it through their eyes. And, and yet you never say, you know, I really feel sorry for this individual. It's always like, how come people are such assholes? That's what sort of the takeaway. That whole community, how come they're acting that way? And it, it, I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but I just think he's he's just so compelling to read because of that. And even I just I just, I just did. Of, uh, sorry, you go for it. I, I just did the turning wheel. Oh, cool! I haven't read that one. Well, I, I'll, I'll send it to you. It, it's it's really quite good too. I mean, it's like they have the. Uh, uh, it's well. Let's see. I saw there, there was a movie out, 
and was like uh, White Man's Burden. Right. Uh, no, I they, watched that. Re- rewatched that recently. Didn't that? Didn't nothing. Well, this, this is basically interestingly. This is this is a turnaround where the Asians are on top, the Botswanis are second, and the Caucasians are on the bottom. Huh. After the nuclear war. And you know he he so really what's going on in that that movie that inspired or the TV show right the Asians are in charge of uh, of Eastern or Western yeah. United well, States. Oh, that you know I, I watched I that and that that is so so creepy. You know it's kind of like you know well what if we would have lost the war? It's occupation, right? That's what's and that's what it is. And you know the funny thing is that they in the middle they head for Canyon City, which is where I live. <laughs> and uh you're the but, man in the high castle <laughs> yeah. yeah no i'm not the man in the high castle but that's uh uh you know there's some things definitely wrong with how they portray canyon city but uh i was telling you that uh philip k dick is buried in in colorado right yeah so uh, yeah. maybe he's the man in the high castle could be could be the man in the high castle but well i tell you that that is just so so creepy because you don't you know what a typical thing where you don't know who the bad guy is, really. But they expose him right away. And, uh, mm. uh, you know, and you were talking you earlier about that this. book. It, you'll, you'll really dig that book. You can't, you can't do the, uh, audiobook. Uh, it's not public domain, but, um, you, you can enjoy the book. It's a really good book. Yeah. It, uh, well, I'm hoping it comes a, a series on, uh, Amazon. Yeah, that would be yeah. good. It was, uh, but you were, you were talking earlier about, you know, uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, fear of the uh, Nazis and so forth. And I tell you, that that the man in the high castle, that that's that's it. That is it. You yeah. know, and it just uh, coming to uh, America and uh, he, it, it, it's just really scary. He said that in the notes uh, or I think in an interview, he said one of the reasons he did, he said it in the Western states, other than the fact that, you know, that's where he hung out mostly. Is because, uh, he didn't want to deal with the Nazis and what they would do. Uh, and so what's alluded to in the book as to what they're doing is, you know, living in that world. We, we only hear what's going on. We never actually see it, but the Japanese are sort of benign in the, in the way that the American benign in Japan in the occupation. You know, we're superior and we're very interested in your cultural artifacts, but basically you, you just yeah. have to do us proper obeisance and then that's cool, right? You know, we're in, we own the factories now, but that's fine. Um, well, you know, it's, it's like area. It's like, you know, everybody's genetic history is being rooted through and anybody doesn't fit whatever standard is, you know, supposed to be this week. They're they're in the fire. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I knew a, a, a Japanese woman who uh, was 15 at the time of the World War Two ended and. uh like, you know, she worked in the, after she became accustomed to, uh, like she stayed in the house for two weeks or three weeks before she went out. And the first time she went out, she, the American she saw was a black man and she went back in the house for <laughs> another two weeks. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a story that Cyril Cornbluth wrote about four years before The Man in the High Castle that doesn't get anywhere near the, uh, attention it does. It's called Two Dooms. Has any of you read that? <clears throat> 
no, but I'm a big fan no. of Cornbluth. And you know, Mike, there's a ton of Cornbluth on the uh, on the page, and he he died really young, so almost nothing of his was renewed. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I'll have to take a is, look at it. It's a dynamo yeah, of was, energy. That was in public domain, Mike. You you should record record I'll that check one it out. because basically the story is it's it starts in World War II and the main character gets a vision of the future where where the Nazis and the Japanese win the war and he goes across this devastated America where the West Coast is dominated by Japanese and Asians and mm. he winds up getting getting uh, mixed up with the Nazis who have gone all weird occultist and it's it, and it's, it's it's a very it's 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 it's, a, it's even more surreal than Dick in some ways and I wonder if Dick since it's four years before, if Dick had read that story and said, I can do this better, and went ahead and decided to do it. It's possible. Very possible. Yeah, that, uh, you know, what I was going to tell you, it's like, uh, you know, when the uh, Americans came to Japan, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, they, they accepted them. You know, when the, uh, the emperor says, okay, you know, these guys are number one and we're number ten, and don't you forget it. Huh. And, you know, they really, you know, she talks about how MacArthur and his wife would go down the street or, you know, and parade, you know, and they'd all bow. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, when, That's not what happened in Germany, right? The, the, they had the Wolverines, the or werewolves, they were called, right? The, there was sort of a, a resistance movement against the American occupation. It didn't last that long, but they were. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there was a uh, more of a resistance in Germany than Japan because, you know, it's uh, like. You know, Japan at that time was, uh, you know, they believed the emperor was a god and whatever he said was, uh, was the law. And, uh, it's they, hard to, they fell in line. Hard to know though whether the, you know, the <laughs> fact that the nuclear, yeah. the two nuclear ex- things didn't sort of put an extra, you know, punch behind the fact that, listen, we've sort of got to do what they say now or we're gone. Right. Yeah, so that's, that was a that was a real that was a real threat. Nuclear weapons as the ultimate argument. Yeah, it's like you know you know you and I go to a movie and uh, you want to see one and I don't want to see that one and then you pull out a gun and like I guess we're seeing that movie. I don't yeah, well, see it's, that movie, it's, but I you know I, I don't want to go to the movie theater with you again. But I'm going to go see that movie now because yeah, I'm going to see that. But you know I I I saw a clip of uh, a TV show that was, you know, they did things live back in the 50s. And there's this guy, you know, he's just yada, 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 yada. And he gets this note, and, I mean, his face just goes blank. He blanches, and he looks in the camera, and he says, the Soviets have detonated an atomic weapon. And, you know, it's like, you know, for a long time, we had the bomb. Yeah. And then they get the bomb. And it's a whole new ball game. Yeah, it's it's like that's why the that's where all all these nuclear <laughs> ambitions come from, right? Is is that once you have the nuclear weapons, you know, the Americans invading you is sort of off the table. Yeah, at least at least uh, you know, generally, the the story was never you know there wasn't that movie. You never saw the Hollywood movie where the Americans invaded Russia. Right. 
It was never the Americans invade Soviet Union. It was always the Soviet Union invading. Yeah, the Soviet Union coming here. You know, it was right. Uh, yeah, Red Dawn, etc. Uh, you know, I'm sure they had the same the fear in the Soviet that. Union. They made it North Korea, which was the most <laughs> hilarious thing in the entire universe. North Korea invades the United and successfully invades the United States. Okay, somebody needs to be uh, sort of educated on the number of people in North Korea, <laughs> number of nuclear weapons, number of tanks. No matter what you uh, do, you, know, you can't the, to win that one. Sneak attack, no matter what, it's not going to happen. They're, they're, well, they've got the probably the strongest standing army in the world, I mean, in North Korea. and uh, In the sense that they have a whole bunch of people in the army, but they're yeah, all well, in, I think. Well, actually, it comes down to, you know, the spirit of the bayonet, where you go in and uh, have to clean out that last guy in the foxhole. And they oh, got, no, I, I, I'm not saying, you know, it's a wise thing to invade. Um, you know, the fact that the United States could be successfully invaded by North Korea is. Yeah, yeah it, it probably would not go well because, you know, it's like, you know, North Korea is such an isolated country. They don't understand us any more than we, we understand them. And, uh, you know, we're going to probably be invaded from the inside. And, uh, well, it's autoimmune it's disease at this point, I think. Yeah, yeah. The DCA is yet one of those many, uh, that's the acronym, right? The FBI and the DEA and the, the acronym ITIS that, that sinks, sinks the ship, uh, in a warring conflict between all the, all the, uh, different acronyms. You can't, you can't keep, I mean, there used to be a lot of them, but they just keep adding more, more and more. more you know? But yeah, go. In well, yeah, I mean, like there's going to be two more, I'm sure. Like, like with the internet, you know, I mean, it's just they got all these uh, acronyms, and uh, you know, your operating system in your computer, you got acronyms, and it just uh, got a lot of acronyms to keep track of. Well, yeah, but those at least aren't government organizations that are being funded from tax. Uh, you know, right? You know, and that, you know that's that's kind of a funny thing. It's like they, you know, people talk about, well, the government's uh, secret uh, uh, option or whatever, you know, and it's uh, been 50 <laughs> years and they still haven't let the news out. Well, you know, you realize you've got little people in there, too, and somebody is going to let the news out. It's not, you know, your government conspiracy thing and so forth or the uh, aliens in uh, Arizona or wherever they are. <laughs> the, the, those are illegal aliens, unfortunately. Not the uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's, <laughs> but the ones that are on the in the spaceship. I mean, oh right, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, that's been that covered a up. Hilarious story. I I didn't even understand what was going on. It was. Uh, it's like you have to be so obtuse to be offended. It was. Uh, it was uh, some science fiction convention in California, and they served Mexican food in the cafeteria. <laughs> and that's why the that's why the university had to apologize. What? It's like what? Huh? Because Mexicans are aliens. It's what? Like, what? How do you make that connection? That, okay, this is this is okay. like yeah, that's really that's yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, like I lived in California for a while, and it's uh, there was there was something came out, you know, it says what would happen if the Mexicans all went home, and it would shut the state down. You would, there would be no, no restaurants, no, all kinds of things that would happen if they were, you what know, we did not have to. The Americans left California. That's the real question. Cause, you know, it was Spanish for a long time. 
Yeah, well, it's it's running out of water now, and they just don't want Man, to come to Cal, Cal, Colorado. The problem. They might all be moving to Colorado. Yeah, well, don't don't spread that rumor around, Jesse. We don't want them. But you're pretty dry there too, right? I mean, oh yeah, we're really dry. So we don't have any water. <laughs> no, but you're not just saying that. It's dry there. All the water's up by you, Jesse. I know. Well, this is not yeah, good. Well, yeah, I read something you yesterday about that. For all our trees yeah, remember, and fish. Remember Pacific Edge? Yeah, well, it's... Where they uh, talk about the, Col- the Columbia River project, where they're going to divert water from the Columbia River all the way down to California? Yeah, that's absolutely the, right. I read that yesterday. I read that yesterday. The solution for the, uh, for the drought in California is divert water from Vancouver. Well, the Columbia River comes out of British Columbia. And goes into, we generously give it to you, <laughs> in uh, the dividing line between Washington and Oregon. Um, that's very kind of us, but come on. You should use that water properly. I don't know. Yeah, we're going to drive. We're going to take over Canada. Oh, <laughs> we're going to melt it down. Yeah, yeah. We don't well, need we've already started water. melting it. We got the RCMP. The warming. acronym the, the we RCMP, The RCMP. Yeah. But go, 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 go. Only we need. So, so going back to the DCN and, and and the story we're talking about, so people went way out of field. So, mm-hmm. so, so look at looking at looking at this. The it just it strikes me the whole fears of superiority, the 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 the, uh, the mutants. It, it does seem that this story is very archetypical, Dick, and fits really well in this of Warren Cannon because it it brings together a lot of the things he was worried worried about. And, and yet, mm-hmm. still feels like it feels like his 1950s future after an atomic war, which, um, and I was thinking about things like a Canticle for Leibowitz when I was reading this, where, where you have mm-hmm. where you have a devastated landscape that gets rebuilt, but then people are afraid of mutants, especially in the, I think it's the third section where you have, where where you've gone from the devastation to a, a society again. It's a society very 50s like Miller. Miller writing in the way very much like Dick, but yeah, there's still people. I still recall in those last sections there are mutants around and people shun them and dislike them, and it's kind of like here, just like. But here, Dick is just amplifying that fear up to up to eleven, and the mutants are the future, and we don't want that future. We want the future. We we we. we I want us to to quote the Solaris movie. Now I'm really going with far, but I want us to win. I want humans to win. Right. Now, what, what's interesting to me is like, you know, he, Dick's wise. He's read a lot of books. He knows that humans have not always lived on the earth, you know, and that he, he doesn't say it, but it's pretty obvious that, you know, he's aware of the fact that we may not always live on the earth. Um, and the fact that if the future of humanity goes on as a, as a kind of being like Chris Johnson is, it's not going to be very pleasing to us regular folks who are like, this is why people are upset that their kids are autistic, right? Is because they don't seem to be communicative with the rest of humanity. Mm. And if you are uh, like Chris, uh, you know, superior in the sense that you can't make mistakes, right? You, you, you just never trip and fall. You never, uh, make an error that's going to hurt you. That is a awesome benefit. And you think about how the girl in this story, you know, she's attracted to him, not just because he's so golden and attractive, but the fact that he is in a sense, quote unquote, superior as Dick is saying, you know, okay, you want a story about 
superior mutants. Here's one. And imagine if they're not like us in the sense that they can have, you know, narrative conversations and, and discuss things and, and have a memory of what human civilization is like. They're just better at doing everything and don't actually, they're not actually, you know, aware of themselves as being uh, in a community. They just, they're animals basically. And then how, how do you like that, John W. Campbell? It's like, take oh that. shit. Right. But notice the girl's still going for it, right? Is it girls? You know what? My genes would be better off with him than they would any of these other guys hanging around the DCA. And he's very confident and he doesn't worry about the past. Just yep. gets the past. He's always, he's a golden god. He comes he's up. always in the yeah. future. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the, the uh, seduction part in the, uh, at the end and it's just, uh, he doesn't have to say anything. Just she couldn't breathe. She stands the there. Yeah. Mixed it's the Steve, with the, the Steve McQueen of mutants. <laughs> yes. Shimmering golden haze swept around her, annoyed. Around and around it spiraled, carrying her senses away. She sank down into it gratefully. The darkness covered her and dissolved her in a swelling torrent of sheer force. Are they having sex? I, I think I'm swooning. I, I, I think there's a strong <laughs> implication because she, they talk about her getting sterile. I think it's not it's not explicitly said in text, but I I took it as written that yeah they have sex. Yeah, Let's that's see. what they're doing there. Anita blinked, but is she Chris, sat up and automatically pushed her hair in place. Chris was standing <laughs> before the closet smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big giveaway. <laughs> Is you, know, you ever notice? You ever notice how important parts cigarettes take? Yeah. In Dick uh, stories, well, it's harder to smoke a cigarette while you're having sex, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, it you was like uh, after. I guess that's like an old movie uh, trope too. Yeah, it is. He 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 does put sex in. Remember, uh, Paul, we had a a Philip K. Dick novel where uh, there was like this night scene. It's all just done in dialogue, and it's like, hey, wait a second, they they just had yeah. sex. It's like, huh? He's very good at uh, sort of. He puts in all the stuff he wants, but, um, you know, the explicit uh, sex stuff does not tend to go into SF. Uh, it does now, which actually annoys me because there's sort of a focus on it. It's like, okay, and now we're going to have sex for and five or six minutes. It, yeah. 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 yeah, it's like, well, hey, yeah, can, that's you, can you send me a list? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they definitely had sex in all the ones with the uh, 20 out uh, 25. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. It's, 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 it's a seduction, but at one point, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I thought. Well, he's, he's in the future. He can go I ahead. So, I mean, true. it was kind of like he finished in, uh. But the thing is, is, you know, if he's just satisfying a sexual urge, he doesn't know, uh, and he doesn't know that, uh, she's going to get sterilized. Is she actually going to give birth to, uh, the, you know, the, is she going to be the mother of dragons or whatever it is, you know, the, the, uh, Daenerys yeah. from Game of Thrones. So, well, you know what I mean? Is she going to be, you know, the first of many women that this guy's going to conquer in Genghis Khan style? Well, there there are probably more of well, him out there. I don't think so. I don't think so. He's, he, He's just the only one, huh? He, like, well, there's tons of other ones, right? But this yeah, but they're not like him. particular family. Until he multiplies. Right. Right. Yeah, so he's going, I think he's going to be like, he's just going to Genghis his way through a lot of women that he meets 
and they're going to repopulate the earth with sort of dumb, feral cubs that are really good at, you know, charming the ladies. Until, until that becomes the, the dominant it, paradigm. There's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dialogue at the end, you know, well, it doesn't mean anything if he's escaped. That's not a big deal because, uh, we'll hunt him down eventually. Um, and so, and besides, even if he does reproduce, uh, he, you know, his thing will be recessive. And it's, no, I have a feeling it's dominant, right? It's like, that's the end, that's the end on it, right? Whatever it ends with the guys agreeing to, that's what really is going to happen in my world. There's no last paragraph. He says, I wouldn't lay any money on that, Jane said. I think I know already which of the two strains is going to turn up dominant. He grinned wryly. I mean, I'm making a good guess. It won't be us. Yeah. Why is he grinning wryly? Because yeah, that's, that's, that's like, that. yeah, this yeah. is, this is we're not going to have a pretty time of time of it because, well, it kind of reminds me. Now it's not mutants, but it's horror and and changed creatures. It reminds me of the end of In the Mouth of Madness, the movie. Any of you see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's like uh, poor Trent realizes he's going to be the last man on Earth because everybody else has changed, is either dead or changed and mutated, and he's the last one left. And every every species can smell its extinction. The last ones will have a pretty bit, pretty time of it. And in ten years, maybe less, man will just be a myth, nothing more. Yeah, it's you know it's going to be a long process, yeah. but. Uh... Say that's uh, the oldest survival method in the newest, combined to form one perfectly adapted animal. How the hell are we going to stop him? He can put guess- you through it. We can put you through a sterilization tank. We can't pick them all up. All the women he meets along the way. And if we miss one, we're finished. But it's more of a threat to the men than it is to the women. Again, yeah, it, it is a threat to the men. You know, he has more like, testosterone than I, the regular men. I, I'm just imagining. Now I'm thinking of the movie Species. Have you? And imagining a female golden man. Oh, <laughs> considering, considering how men act, I mean, how do you stop her? I mean, she can't produce as many children, but but that that's even worse in some ways. Well, that's why you have the mutants with the eight breasts. <laughs> See? Oh, yeah, they've got to feed them all. <laughs> no, what, 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 so Can't be that. I was thinking about that picture, and he says, hey, pretty pretty sexy, or whatever he says, right? What do you think of that? What do you make of this? Um, <laughs> at the beginning, Mike's really good at being that creepy guy. Uh, um, in any case, the that, that picture, I was thinking, well, wait a second, that actually isn't that useful, because, I mean, two babies, you have two arms, you knuckle, you know, one in each arm. But eight breasts, you need eight arms. Because, you, you know, if you have a whole litter of kids, the eight arms, you know, the eight breasts would require eight arms. Or you have to go down on all fours, which is how the puppies do it, right? The dogs do it and the kittens do it. And you have to sit on the subway, on a subway bench. Because, it, oh, this is, it, 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 there is a lot of, you know, turning people into animals, right? The, that's why we can exterminate them is because they're rats, right? They're subhuman. And, and by, you know, sexualizing this, this woman, poor woman with eight breasts, it's like, hey, what do you make of that? It's like, well, um, it's kind of like they, uh, you know, they, they try different. It's, it's like there's something with uh, some superpower that is, uh, putting these things on earth 
that, uh, you know, try them out, see how that one works and that one works. And they come up with this guy who's, uh, just irresistible to women, human females says he'll never have to worry. Bain said he'll get by as long as human women exist to take care of him. And since he can't see ahead and he can see ahead into the future, he already knows he's sexually irresistible to human females, you know, and it just, uh, it's, it's kind of like he's, uh, it, it's like human, like nature, you know, the fish have scales, the birds have plumage and he just glows like a lion. Yeah. He, he's covered in fur, right? He's got like a, he's golden fur color. All over his skin. Uh, I was wondering how he put on pants, but apparently in the picture, he's got a pair of shorts on. Uh, well, he kind of, it's kind of like it glows. I mean, he yeah. <laughs> morphs into, uh, it's like when he becomes aroused, it, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, animals that, uh, their appearance changes when they're, they're during the breeding season. Yes. Yeah, no, like uh, he's like a peacock. There's a, yeah. there's a, the camp. Elspeth de Camp's story called Hyperpilosity, where a virus runs through the human population, making everybody grow body hair all over. And the end, the end of it is they say find a cure and they decide not to use it because enough people like the change in humanity. <laughs> so yeah, so, so, because they're like, oh, I, I like my, I like my tawny hairy coat so i'm gonna we're gonna keep it we're not gonna use the cure people wouldn't want it anyway anymore and it's like oh, really okay yeah it makes sense uh, i mean uh, it's not that unappealing uh the way uh the guys described right the girls are gonna go for it oh so her there one of my friends uh my friend steen was saying um uh he would just had just been reading about why uh peahens choose peacocks with the mm-hmm. longest tails and it's not just because, you know, it shows their genetic blah, 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 but also because it, they want their sons, whatever sons they have, to be attractive to peahens, right? <laughs> so, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because if they don't go for the ones with the big long tails, then their, their offspring won't be attractive to peahens. They have the best genes. Yep. The best scenes, like the golden man. Yeah, it's just like he's put down here to breed with uh, the humans, and it will just breed us out of business. It's not like they're going to uh, all of a sudden destroy us, but it will be yeah. the women. Well, you have That's a right. whole bunch of these things, and you can't. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like the war we're in now. You know, it's uh, you, you can't find them. And you can't pin them down. And but there they are. They'll wait us out. Yeah. No. You know, it's it's like you know going to back to the the turning wheel. You, you, it's it's really good where the Caucasians who are are cocks they don't even use the, ter- the full term for them. <laughs> you know, and they talk about how hairy they are. You know, and it just uh, uh, they're really unattractive. And it, but you have the the technos. Who are Caucasians, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's very racist, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, a lot of these, I mean, you go to Lovecraft, I mean, he was Mr. Primo racist. And, uh, racist. That's his, that's basically his premise. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to read that. That's actually the next one in this book. Uh, the gold man. And then it's the turning wheel. I think there it's like, I will, I will send you, I'll, I'll put that on my, my Dropbox for you and, uh, send it to you so you can listen to it. I, 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 I thought it was really fun, Mike. I, I, I was like, this guy is such a creep <laughs> that, that, Hey, what do you think of this baby? <laughs> it's like, the perfect cover. Take it a load of this. And it's like, oh my god, what a horrible monster. And But the thing is, is, it's an act. I can't get over this, right? He's going around from community, the DCA go around from community to community in telling people stuff like this so as to elicit the things that they don't want publicly to talk about. The fact that there's mutants all around them and they have to be crushed. Yeah, you know, it's just like he changes as he goes from uh, place to place, you know, you know, he's one thing in the restaurant, mm-hmm. something else when he meets a cop, and then when he goes right, and meets the Johnsons, and then he's a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. And he he can't even tell or the he's cop. He's lost, right? He can't even tell the cop because they they won't they won't cooperate, right? Yeah, it's a super secret agency. It's it's so secret that everybody knows about it. Right, they're yeah. all talking about it all the time. There's even a camp, and they're taught about it in sociology class. And yet, they can't. If a DCA person walked into the room and said, "Yes, we're looking for any mutants. Anybody know of a mutant?" You know why they? W- it's like it makes me think that they don't want to. They just won't want informers around them, right? You don't want to be the informer in the community, yeah. and yet. I think every family's having a mutant or something. It, it's it's very creepy. It'd be like it's it's kind of like you know when the uh, the FBI sends in uh, an agent to you know like a a town because they hear there there's some anarchists there right and they get involved in the anarchist group and they sort of try and you know say you know there's not much anarchist anarchy action happening here maybe i should just you know suggest something and they basically end up running the show you know yeah you know it's it's like you know recruiting all sorts uh, this happened with the dea not that long ago did you hear about this the dea was trying to uh get inside the drug drug organization so they set up drug drug fake drug uh running things and they hired a whole bunch of retarded kids to like run it no. did you hear about this horrible story it's horrible and then here's what they, so they'd hire like you know you know kids with learning disabilities or whatever who they they pay with like what they do is they set up like a <laughs> like a, a wrap or skating clothing sort of store and then you know hint 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 about how they would accept drugs as payment for for uh stuff and how they're willing to buy a lot of drugs because they they were bikers and then they'd set these things up and they'd run, they'd staff them with you know uh local people who are unemployable and then after the you know they're telling them we need this we need this can you recruit this they you know get them to get drugs and uh, guns oh yeah it was actually it's the ATF and it was guns I ah, think. sorry okay. <laughs> uh, not the DEA, I think it's the ATF. And so they, they got, you know, people to bring in guns and, and then as soon as that, that would happen for a while, they just charged the people they'd hired with trafficking guns. That's Kafka by way of dick. 
oh my god, it was horrible. It's like such a horrible story, and it happened again and again. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the ATF has got to be careful because Anna Ari will come after him. So, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't. It's like, yeah, well, see, that's, 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 that's living in America. You know, it's like, you know, all these people have their, their, their Zippo whip or whatever. Well, you know, it's like, hey, I was in a restaurant the other day, you know, and it's one guy I could see his, see his gun. And, uh, there were probably several other people that, had a firearm, huh? You know, and I mean, that's that's the world we live in in America. It's uh, yeah, the guns make us safer. Sure, they do. You know, it's like you you listen to the uh, this is getting way off it, but I mean, it's like you know, the uh, top six at six, and three of them are shooting in Colorado Springs, you know. Hmm. But uh, welcome to America, you know. And this thing about you know, it's kind of like you go back to the period where they're writing this and they're talking about hmm. Anita. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's like, even though she's really high up. Yeah, she's in, in the and all of them, so she can, yeah, but, right. you know, but the thing is, he says, put his hand on Anita's shoulder and patted her ironically. <laughs> yeah, don't be, sweetheart. You won't be the only one. You're just the first of a long procession. You know, is that, that sexist yeah, or what? I, I have a note here, sexist in my notes, yeah. That's, but. Yeah, the women don't come out that great in this story. <laughs> Yeah, you should have you should have had a woman on this one, Jess. You know, to, I don't think anybody comes out great. I I don't think anybody's clean in this in this fight. The only people who I have a lot of sympathy for are Chris's me, yeah, family. You know, the, the brother yeah. and sister and the mom and dad. I mean, yeah, you know, like Chris is special. You know, but they it's like they love him. You know, and it's uh, they feed and clothe him. They try and invite him to play the game. And what's funny is there's a line. This is quite touching in retrospect. There's a line saying, you know, he never participated in their, you know, games. And yet in that, they they invited him to play the horseshoes game, right? Yeah. And he did. Yeah, and he, he throws he, a ringer and walks he, off, you know? He, ru- he ruins it, but that's sort of the, you know, in, in the sense that, oh, you always ruin everything. Because he, he's just so perfect at everything. Yeah. But the thing is, it, the fact that he's doing that is like, it's like goodbye almost. You know, but he's not, he's not evil or anything to him. I mean, it's like he's, he's there. He's beautiful and he, he doesn't fit in, but he's not a nuisance, let's say. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, they, they really tend to admire him. He's just a brother. He's just one of their brothers. He's their, their older yeah. brother. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a repulsive story and an attractive story and it's, it's really powerful when, when you think about it, I think. You know, and another thing is that, you know, going back to the beginning, it's like how the wife was so beat up or not, not beat up is the wrong word, but I mean, she's elderly. Just exhausted. Yeah. They felt elderly and, to me. She had gray hair, I think. Yeah. You know, like the, the husband, I mean, he was a pretty powerful guy. I mean, you know, it's, it's I'm going to whip your ass, you know, if you don't be doing yeah. here. And uh, he probably was the woman is just uh you see her as this beaten down thing and just given up on everything you know and it's uh saying okay what do you want me to do you know yeah i, I going back just we'll, we'll wrap this up in a minute but i going back to the movie i'm i i was like how could they have adapted this this sort of you know the the plot thread of this story is it's about it's getting us to the point where we understand that 
all our attempts to try and suppress uh, mutants is not going to work because, and they're going to take over, and we're inferior, but not in a way that we think we're inferior. It's only in the way they, the way reality thinks we're inferior. And and then try and do that as a movie. It wouldn't work. They couldn't sell that as a script, right? So what do they do instead in that in the movie? The movie has a a really stupid plot and a whole bunch a bunch of scenes that are lame. But apparently there's a bunch of French people, <laughs> French Europeans who want to blow up Los Angeles. That's the plot. I don't those, know why the French Russians. are so angry at Los Angeles. No, I think they're speaking French. I don't know why. I mean, typically it's Russians, but why Los Angeles? Well, that happens to be when they make movies. You know, they, the, the plot development of the girl going to, uh, Grand Canyon, uh, it's nice scenery, but what the hell does that have to do with you know, anything? The movie's a train wreck in so many respects. There's so many FBI agents running around. And the, you know what this is made so lightly to me is that this, the the female FBI agent who is who is I guess like Anita in a certain sense, um, and also like uh, our uh, love interest in the movie. She's sort of been split into two characters. Um, she she's a monster. She doesn't care about the law, right? She yeah, only Julia Mo- she Julia only cares Moore's about character. I liked her because she was so she was so straightforwardly. A, relentless. Relentlessly. Yeah, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna, I want, I want the, I want the permission to get Chris. I'm gonna use him to stop the bomb. I'm gonna do I'm, she was, I know, I, she's kind of repellent away, but in some ways I kind of admired her. Maybe because of my Julianne Moore crush, but that's a different thing. But, but just, it's <laughs> like, yeah, I'm gonna stop this and I'm gonna use any means I can to stop it. It's very driven. Not very sympathetic, but driven. Yeah, but she, she, she gets strong female that, protagonist. Yeah. Well, she's a, but notice she, she gets him in that room, just like Chris is in, in the, in the Golden Man, right? Where they're gonna, you know, fire laser beams at him. But instead of, uh, firing laser beams at him, uh, they strap him up to the, you know, what's that chair clockwork from? Clockwork Orange, yeah. Uh, clockwork Orange, right. So they strap him in the Clockwork Orange chair and then make him watch CNN. <laughs> that could be torture in itself. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's torture. It's a pretty bad torture. But the thing is, he's like, it wasn't Fox. <laughs> they don't actually do news on Fox, so they wouldn't actually help very much trying to predict what's going on in the future. But the the uh, the thing is, is she completely ignores the fact that holy shit, there's a guy who can see into the future. She just wants to use it to solve this little issue. I think that even if a bomb went off in in Los Angeles, that the lead, right? The fact that there's a guy who can uh, see into the future, even if it's for two minutes, as they've done in the movie. That's not how it is in the book. It doesn't say how far into the future he can see. I get the sense that distance into the future in the book, but in the movie, that that two minute rule and the the uh, the girlfriend who he can see, you know, uh, in diner that we get at the beginning of the story, that's really bearing the lead. The fact that somebody could see into the future at all. He would become a threat Everybody. in the sense that you know, but see, the thing is, the thing is, he's got he's got no past, and it's almost like you have to have a past to decide what you're going to do in the future. And you know, and here it says that uh, Chris doesn't have any past. 
All he has is the future. Which is his present. Which yeah, is, say, which is his... Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say, what's his motivation? Well, well, we, we get tiny bits of that because he has a little couple scenes with Irv and it's clearly he's had run-ins with the law and other things in the past with his powers and, and, and I get the sense, I mean, the screenplay, the screenplay has problems. The movie has lots of problems. I get the sense that he's had brushes with people in the past where he's tried to reveal his power and it's gone so badly that, okay, he, he, he masks it under and counting cards at casinos. But he can't, he can't have been. Yeah, he says, he says he was, he was, uh, for months they were asking what was that, that's where the movie title comes from and uh, what was the next card, right? Cause they're yeah. doing psychic testing yeah. on him or something. So the, the fact that, you know, they've got their, you know, you can arrest people without warrant and it, strap them to, uh, you know, metal tables and, Stick uh, forks in their eyes and make them watch CNN uh, domestically. That's news, right? That, I don't. And, and the fact that you know her bosses sign off on this. What well, the idea that this guy may be able to help stop this bomb? Uh, I don't think you know <laughs> this movie's got yeah, a lot of problems. There's one more, one more thing. I think we're just about done. There's a suggestion that he's not the only one because why is she looking for one guy that can see the future? How did she hear about him? It's clear that she, a she's been looking for psychic people like this in the past, mm-hmm. and b Chris says himself there are people plural that can do do things. So there's a cu- don't ask this question because it might lead to a television series. <laughs> Next, the series. Hey, maybe he's actually a descendant of oh, Chris the other John, guy. The new Chris John. Yeah, but I, I do think that the movie implies that there are other people out there with psychic powers. We just don't see them. You know, one one of the um, one of the things that's interesting is that Chris doesn't need to speak because speaking is for planning. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, and I, I don't see that, you know, in the in the book, in the story, yeah. that he has any motivation. He's, he's an animal. He's just a being, right? He's just he's just an animal out there, and he can seduce our race into more people like him with no motivation. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't do anything. He's he, just survival. He, he can't do it's anything. Very existential, yeah. Yeah, just uh, very survival, and it's like like I say, I mean, you have to have a past to have a future. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.